0: This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Toshinai Just to start, the Maharb tells us, mat the tachanunim the kavana, mahaber's It's better to say fewer of the tachanunim with understanding and kavana, than to say many of them without kavana. Of course, it's best to spend the whole day saying all of them with kavana. At least til if you can say them with kavanah, and to make them very meaningful. We'll go on til Chatzais, and we'll say approximately 14 of the kinnis. When we hear the number 1948, different things come to mind. Some people think of the modern state of Israel. Some people think of 1948, the birth of Avram Avinu, from the beginning of creation, 1948. For us, 1948 now means the amount of years since the destruction of the second base of Migdash, 1,948 years ago. And we're still here crying about it. No one in the history of will had to cry for anything so long. If that's what Akash Baruch Hu wants from us, it's obvious that we are capable of delivering whatever it is that Akash Baruch Hu is looking for from us. We looked at the that we read, and all the kids were going to say, we speak so much about crying and about tears. What are we crying about? And what are we looking to accomplish with our tears? So we know that what happened was, Qayistral was about to enter Yisrael, and we approached Maishra Bey, We want to send spies. We want to send Maraglum to spy out the land. The spies went, they came back, and they had a bad report about Eretz Yisrael. But that shouldn't have caused a problem because we could have just said, okay, that's their report, very nice. Hashem said we should go in and we're going to trust in the Kaddish Baruch Instead, as the Gemara tells us, we went back to our tents and we cried that night. The Gemara tells us in Tainas, That day was Eretz Tisha And when they went that night, that was actual Tisha Omer Baruch you went and you cried for nothing. For free, I'm going to give you something to cry about. I'm going to give you to cry for you. And it's something we have to understand. That sounds like a very spiteful God. You're crying. I'll give you something to cry about. Why would a Kabbalat Baruch do that to us? We don't have such a God. We have a loving God. We don't have a God who's spiteful. What does a Kadosh mean? You cried for nothing. I'm going to give you a time. I'm going to give you this thing for you to cry. To explain, Rav Shamshef Hirsh explains what tears are. He says tears are the sweat of the soul. Tears are something a person expresses when he can't express himself anymore. If a person very sad. He gets so sad, he's in pain, and then he starts crying, and he cries and cries. A person can be very happy, and he's very excited and very happy. He can be so happy, he starts to cry. And that's because tears are that expression. Tears go a little further. As he says, tears are the sweat of the soul. When we can't express ourselves anymore, that's when the tears come. And that ha- That was supposed to happen by the Moraglum. The Meraglim, the, the Klayishu was faced with a situation uh, we can't go there to Eretz The spy says even Hashem can't go and win it for us. And at that point, the Eden should have said, okay, obviously, I don't know how this is going to work. But Akash Baruch said he's going to take us in. So I don't know what Akash Baruch is going to do. He's going to have some great trick up his sleeve, but we're going to go to Eretz Yisrael. And the crying should have been a crying that Hashem, we did everything we can do. We did all the shtalus we can do. And now you have to do the rest. You have to make it happen. But that's not what happened. We cried a cry of helplessness. And we said that it can't be done. And that's why we cried. And Hashem said, you cried for nothing. I gave you this beautiful midah, this beautiful trait of crying. And you use it for nothing. You use it for b'chidam. You use it to cry that I can't do anything. Hashem says, I'm going to give you the opportunity to rectify that. I'm going to give you the opportunity to use your tears for the right thing. I'm going to give you the opportunity to use tears to cry, showing, Hashem, I can't do it, you have to do it, and putting our full trust in the Rabbinah Sholeilam. And that is what the Kosh Baruch Hu is looking for us. He's looking for us to use our tears correctly. What happened on Tisha B'Av? We know the Beisimiddish was destroyed. As Gomorrah tells us, Megaglin schusley de zakai, and the, the day of Tishabov is a day that's Masugal for tragedies and calamities to us. And therefore the first base of was destroyed, the second base of was destroyed. The Gomorrah goes through all the things that happened. In more modern history we know that august second, fourteen ninety two, the Jews were expelled from Spain and the terrible things that they caused us. And many things that happened. We're because of happened, had the origins in Tishabav. And therefore, we understand that everything that happens has the shirish of Tishabav. And if you want to get rid of pain, you want to get rid of tragedy and calamities, we have to get rid of the shirish, and that is Tishabav. And the obvious question everyone wonders is what does that have to do with us? Are we the generation that we can do it? Many of us. Saw the at the scene of uh, Moshe Feinstein. Moshe Feinstein cried on Tishabav. Moshe Feinstein really, really wanted Mashiach to come. He couldn't bring him. If you go further back to Chovetz Chaim. Couldn't bring Mashiach. Rabbi didn't bring Mashiach. Go all the way back. Rashi didn't bring Mashiach. We're going to bring Mashiach. You say over that the Chesam Seifer on Air of B'Av, would close himself off in a room and he would not let anyone come in. And one year, one of his Tamidan wanted to know what the Chassam Seifer was doing there. So he snuck inside. And the Talmud was shocked to see the Chassam Sefer sitting on the floor, crying. Crying for the korban. he was crying so much, he had a cup and he was collecting the tears in his cup. Which is amazing. To think about it. To, to fill up a cup, he said he filled up the cup more than halfway with tears. And then later on he saw by the Sudesam of Sekes, how he dipped the, the bread into the tears and he said, I ate ashes like bread and mixed the drink with my tears. Years later, this Talmud had the schools to move to Yisrael and there weren't many places to stay but there were a few hovels, places that you are able to see the Makom Migdash, and that's where he rented a place. And a few weeks later, Tisha B'av was coming and he remembered to himself what his Rebbe did, what the Kassam Sefer did on Erev of So he said, he's going to do the same thing. He sat down on the roof of his house facing the Arabias. and he's going to he have his cup ready and he's going to cry and he couldn't get a tear out. He couldn't get a tear out. And he said to himself, how is that possible? My Rebbe able to go and fill up a cup and I can't even get any cups in this. So what are we supposed to do? Years later, when on that madriga. How are we supposed to go and, and cry? See, over by the, by the Holocaust, there were people hiding all over the place. And there was a group of people hiding in the Warsaw Ghetto in the sewer system. As the Nazis would go everywhere, those weren't the few places they wouldn't go into. Every once in a while, they would throw in some sticks of dynamite or send some dogs, seeing if there are anyone hiding there. And there was families hiding there. At one time, there was a lookout. They said, the Nazis are coming. And everyone was getting ready to be very quiet. And there was a child there. And the mother turns to her child and we warns him again. Remember what we spoke about. You have to be completely quiet. And the child, the young boy, was very quiet. The Nazis came. They heard the dogs. They heard the running. They didn't move. And it took time, 20 minutes, a half hour, 45 minutes. Finally, after about an hour, the person gave the all clear, the Nazis left. Everyone starts to go back to where they were before. And this little child looks at his mother and says, Ma, are they gone? She says, yeah, they're gone. He says, could I cry now? And she says, yeah, now you can cry. So then they were able to cry, but they weren't allowed to. Now we're allowed to cry. The question is, are we able to? And the Sassamas tells us the well known answer that a is looking for is a cup full of tears, a cup that's overflowing. And if we think about it throughout history, talking the times of Rashi, and all the Tzedekim until now, they filled up the cup. But we know a cup can be filled and it can be a little more than full. And all it takes is one drop and it will overflow. And that is what's required of us. To get in one genuine tear. One tear of trusting in the Rebbeinah Sholeilam. One tear, not of fear, but a tear, a genuine tear, of rectifying those tears of all those years ago. A tear showing a trust in the Kaddish Baruch Hu. And that tear can cause the cup to flow over. And that's a genuine tear, and that we could do. The first kinu we're going to be saying, kinu vav, First of the kinnas, the kinnas starts shavas suri many shemuni Everything came to a standstill, shavas. It stopped. This kinnas, a lot of the kinnas were written by Ravalazra Kalir. He lives somewhere between the second and seventh centuries. They say he was a child of. Rav Shimon, Rav Shimon bar Yachai, so Rav Lazzar, and Rav Shimon bar Yechai, that's where Rav clear, was. And as we go through the Kinnis, some of them are written easy to understand, some of them are written a little more difficult. And he starts off Shavas. everything came to a standstill. There was life with the Beis HaMikdash, and there was life after the Beis HaMikdash. As we say today, we speak to people who survived the Holocaust, there was life before the war and life after the war, and you can't compare the two. That's what it was. There was life with the basement Mikdash and there was life after the basement Mikdash. You couldn't compare the two. Everything came to a standstill. The kin who says, we, we went down and we were kicked out. And over these things I cry and my, my, my eyes run over with water. By the rivers of the Euphrates, by Peros, our, our tzaddik were mutilated. What is the plural? Over these things they cry, al-eilani b'chiyah. What are these plural things? So the plural things is we cry not just on the loss of the Beis Migdash, but of the loss of Talmud Torah that came together with the loss of the Beis Amikdash. And what happened was, the measure says that Yubuch was sailing down the river and he sees the Leviam. And he said, yeah, these are Levim, these are the ones who sang in the Beis He says, oh, make them sing for me. So Levim were given the order to sing and to play instruments for Nebuchadnezzar. And they quickly went and they bit off their thumbs. So they shouldn't be able to go and sing for Nebuchadnezzar. I go through the kinah, continues further on, I cried out loud for relief, but they still crushed me. And here the Medish explains that they were traveling to Bavel like prisoners, and the Arabs came, pretended to care for us, and they gave us food and drink. They gave us salty bread, which made us very thirsty. And then they gave us these, these flasks of water, these leather flasks of water. And it was hot. We opened it up to drink, and it was empty. And we died in that air, that foul air went inside us. In fact, the matter says more people perhaps died from that than were actually killed by the sword. It's a long kind of the long kin the of continues on, And when finally the nation rested after they traveled, my captors, they fed us pebbles. What does he mean they fed us pebbles? Nobody eats pebbles. The Navi who was trying to warn Kala that the first Smith is going to be destroyed, and nobody listened. So Hashem told them to go and to make kalim that he can transport, that he can travel with. So when they're kicked out, they'll have kalim to make food with. And he made the kalim so people should see, look, it's real, it's going to happen. And nobody listened to him. And sure enough, when they're kicked out and they're traveling, and the captors gave them an opportunity to make some food, they had some flour and some water, but they had nothing to mix it together. So they had to make holes in the ground. And put the flour and water inside and mix it together. But when you mix flour and water together in the ground, of course you're gonna get pebbles. And that's what they ate. That's what they had to eat. And the kinet continues on at the end. Rom Habeyno Amchakulanu <laughs> Zukharash Hashem, look down, because we're your nation. We're the only nation you have. Remember what happened to us. And that's what we think about when we say when we say this kinah. Where did levim get the gamshin? Where did levim get the the ability to go and to bite off their thumbs and not sing to Nebuchadnezzar? And it's obviously because they felt the loss of the Beis HaMikdash. They understood what they were missing. And that's why it's so difficult for us because we don't know what we're missing. We never saw the Beis HaMikdash. We don't know anyone that saw the Beis HaMikdash. We don't know anyone knows someone who once saw it and say, oh, it used to be so good. It's all using our imagination of trying to picture what it was. But the Levim who were there, it was no question for them that they can't play instruments for Nebuchadnezzar. Imagine the home where a mother passes away, a young mother, and she's left with a few little boys. And it comes time by the Shiva for the boys to say, Kaddish, so, the 18 year old and the 12 year old, the same Kaddish. And there's a four year old. He can barely read. So, the older brother goes over to him and tries to help him say Kaddish. And he starts to say the Kaddish. And he can't read the words. And his older brother's trying to help him. The little boy starts laughing because he can't say the words properly. And the whole place breaks out in tears and crying. They're crying. the brothers are crying. And the father's crying. Why are they all crying? They're crying because the mother's dead. And this kid who's laughing doesn't even know what he's missing. And that's why all the rest of the people there are crying. Not so much because the mother is not there. But they're crying for this little child who never had the opportunity to know his mother. And that's why he's crying. And that's why they're crying for him. And that's why we cry also. We're crying because we don't know what it is that we're missing. Which reminds us of that famous story of Shalom Shadron would often say over... When they took over the Kaisel in 1967, and everyone was there—the soldiers and all the people—and people were davening and saying Tillam, and they were Schäfer, and people were crying. And there are other soldiers there, unfortunately, weren't from Shemrat Seir, and they're looking around. Everyone's crying. Just a wall. I mean, what's the big deal? And all of a sudden, one of the soldiers starts to cry. And his buddy looks at him and says, Lamata Why are you crying?" He says, "Ani boche. I'm crying because I'm not crying. I see all my fellow Jews. They're all sitting and crying. And I don't know why they're crying. And that's why I'm crying. That's a reason for us to cry if you don't understand what it is to cry about. Sunchabudemunds describes his experiences in the Lodge Ghetto. And he writes that. Everybody had a hiding place for when the Nazis would come. Some people hid under the board, some people in the attic, some people had holes in the ground. Everyone had their hiding place. They would hope that they would just survive one more act one more raid. And he remembers once there was a raid. Everybody ran to their places. And he and his father, the only ones who were left, the rest of his family was killed. They ran up. They had a place in the attic. They had a false area in the attic. They went to hide there. The Nazis came in and they hear the screaming and yelling. They would come, they would park, and they would block off a block. They would go house to house. These are tall apartment buildings. And they would go building to uh, apartment to apartment. And he says he remembers hearing the screaming and yelling as people being dragged away, gunshots, dogs barking, and they were hiding up there. And he says, well, over two hours, they're up there not making a move. And finally, the Nazis left. And he and his father slid down from their hiding place, waiting to see who else managed to escape. And Not that many people came back. And he sits down, and that night was Tishabov. His father sat down, he pulled out a kinis, and he gave a kinis to his son, <coughs> to Synchabunim. And they sat down, and they started to say Eicha. And he writes, before he knew what was happening, he finished Eicha. He says, Wow, to himself, that was very fast. He says, how come every year Eicha takes so long? And tonight, it was so short. The answer is obvious, he said, because every other night, he was crying because that was the Allah, you have to cry. And tonight, he had what to cry about. And that's why Eicha took so long for him, felt like it took so short for him. But we know the Gemara tells us, Why do we have to wait for things to happen, to connect to it, we connect to it by knowing what it is that we're missing. A little while ago, I was speaking to a large group of teenagers. We were speaking about upcoming three weeks in B'Av. and they said, "Yeah, okay, you know, we have no choice. We have to fast, and hopefully uh, it'll be over, and then we can get back to, to back, get back to the summer." And I spoke to them, and I told them, a famous saying, you know, not to throw away the good because of the perfect. Just because you can't do everything perfect doesn't mean you don't do it good. If you can cry a little, one kinna, one tear, that itself is valuable. And I told him the story of Chaim Weintraub. said over last year, Chaim Weintraub, he was involved in Kirib, up in the area of Haifa, in that area, in Kiribialik. And unfortunately, he had a three-year-old son just a few weeks after his upsharn the son, three-year-old, wasn't gone. He wasn't feeling well. They brought him home, put him to sleep, and, and he passed away. By the shiva, it was packed. Everybody came to him, a well-known person of Chaim Weintraub. And one of the days of shiva, a group of boys came in, obviously not very religious at all, not wearing yarmulkes, dressed very differently. They come inside, and they sat down next to Rechaim, and They start to cry with him. They were there for about a half hour, and they finished they got up to leave they huddled together and then one of them came over to Chaim Weintraub and whispered something in his ear and Chaim gave a big smile and he shook hands with each one of them and they left so one of the people there said what's going on what is that he says they told me they got together and they decided as a schus for my son's neshama that this coming Shabbos they're all going to keep Shabbos they're all going to keep Shabbos so I was very very happy So one of the people looks at him and says, for that you're happy, a They're going to keep one Shabbos, and the next Shabbos they're not going to keep, and they're not embarrassed to say that to you. So Chaim Wai'chav looks at them and says, what don't you understand? If somebody would come over to me and say, how much money are you willing to give to get back your son for one Shabbos? I would say, what? My my, my three-year-old son? To to hold his hand again and walk the show holding his hand? To have him sit on my lap, I can sing with him one more time. I would give everything. What do you think a Karish Baruch would give to have his children come back for one Shabbos? A Baruch would give anything. It's not a small thing they want to come back for one Shabbos. So we look at our Savior Kinnis. A, it's a long one. whole bunch of things to say. We know we're not going to get through it all and think about it and have the proper gavanas. But what would a Baruch give for one of us to give one real tear isn't that precious to the so I told this to the group of boys they looked at me and they said yeah very nice but not us I said what do you mean not us he says you know we've been to places we've seen things we've done things we're not the people that Akash Baruch was looking for to get that one tear I said really you really think so I said yeah so I told them following. I said, a few years ago, I was in Eretz Yisrael for a chasna. And I had a delightful time over there because I was sitting on a very special table. There were two Chavei Knesset on the table. The person sitting right next to me was Rabbi Lau, Rabbi Yisrael Neuer Lau. He was sitting right next to me for the chasna. And I used the opportunity to have a nice conversation with him. And he told me the following story. He says that when he was Chief Rabbi of Israel, he got a phone call from the office of the mayor of New York, of Ed Koch, who's inviting him to New York. He says, look, you're the chief rabbi of the biggest uh, congregation of Jews. Well, I'm the mayor of the biggest city of Jews. Why don't you come? Let's meet. Let's talk. Fine. Did a little uh, studying on Ed Koch, and fine, I went. I came to New York. They gave me a beautiful welcome in in, uh, Gracie Mansion. And I'm sitting and talking to Ed Koch, and Ed Koch tells me, is it true you're the youngest survivor of Buchenwald? I said, yeah. He says, wow, it was amazing. He says, you know, I'm also a survivor. Ed Koch tells Ray So Ray looks at him, and he knows about Ed Koch. Ed Koch grew up in the Bronx. Now, they may have been not so uh, safe over there, but he can't say he's a survivor. So Ed Koch looks at him and says, I know what you're thinking. I'm from the Bronx, and I still call myself a survivor. So Ray looks and says, yeah, well, how could you say that? He says, let me tell you something. Many years ago, a group of mayors of large cities of the United States were invited to Europe to tour and discuss things about the Holocaust. And because of who we were, we were dignitaries, we were brought in to an exact replica of Hitler and office. And we were brought into his office, we saw his office, his desk, and all the different things that he had. And Ed Koch said he saw on the desk it was a globe. A large globe, an extra-large globe. And on the globe, there were numbers written all over the place. So he's looking at it, and he can't figure it out. He looks at it, USA, 6 million. Palestine, 5 million. Greece, 77,000. Albania, 1. He's trying to figure, what could this mean? So he asks the tour guide, "What, what is this? He says, oh, Hitler had a diabolical plan to kill all the Jews, the whole world. See, so he wrote, he researched and he wrote down on his globe that he kept on his desk how many Jews were in each country. And that's what this globe is. And he was looking to go and get rid of all of them. So Ed Koch tells Rabbi Eli, you see, he was after me. He wrote down six million Jews in the United States. He's after all of them. So even though me, Ed Koch, a little kid in the Bronx, he was after me too. But he didn't get me. So I'm a survivor. And Rabbi Lav said, he agreed with him. But Hitler was after all the Jews. And it changed the way he looks at all the hidden around the world. But Rabbi Lav said, there's something more that came up from there. He says, it's amazing. To one thing to write down, 6 million. Five million uh, 500,000 in Palestine. 3 million in Poland. Albania. One. There was one Jew in Albania. Now he made a mistake. There are really 200. But there was one, he writes down, one, one Jew in Albania. Said Rabbi Allah, look at that. Hitler, Yomach, Shalom was ready to go and commit resources and soldiers and money and effort to get after that one Jew in Albania. Says Rabbi Allah, you know why? Because Hitler understood the value of a Jew. Hitler understood the value of one Yid. And he was ready to do everything to get that one Yid in Albania. So I told these boys... If Hitler, your mach understands the value of a Jew, obviously Kodesh Baruch understands the value of one Jew. Hitler had no idea who that one Jew was or what his relationship with the Rebbeinah was. But if Hitler, your mach can understand the value of one Jew, shouldn't we all understand our own value? And how precious it would be to the Rebbeinah if you can go and shed that one tear that shows how we trust the Rebbeinah Shelem, and with that we can overflow that cup. Shava <laughs> <laughs> Next, we'll be saying, Kinna the Ukrainian, Yermayo, Yesio, Adinavi, Yermayo, Yo, Christ, the King, Yesio. Besides her Eicha, this Kina is one of the most important ones we say on Tishuvav this one written by Yermio and he cries over the death of the king Yeshio as we go through the kina, we have to understand why is it that we have a whole kina written by Yermio himself about the death of one person and even though the death of that one person was a king there are many tragedies, but to cry over the death of one person is something that we have to understand. What happened to died during a war with the king of Mitzrayim. And Yermio cries over him. What happened was that Yermio's grandfather, Menashe, was a king. And Menasha was a terrible king. He brought a tremendous amount of Avaid He even put Avaidazara in the Beisimigdash and the Kheshgadash. He took the iron out. And he put he planted a shera trees everywhere. And it was a terrible situation. Later on he was captured and he was almost killed. And he dived into Hashem. And he came back and he did tshuva. But he caused so much damage that he wasn't able to eradicate what he did. Later, his son became king. His son Amon became king. And his son Amon learned well from his father how to do a zara, And he brought back a zara with a vengeance. But he was such a despicable person that after two years, his own servants assassinated him. And that left Yeshio to become king. His son. At that time, he was only eight years old. And they crowned him as king. And Yeshio tried to follow in the way of his grandfather of eradicating uh, eradicating the Vaidazara. And he worked very hard to do that. And it tells us he was so great, it says in the kinnah, Ben he started to learn about Hashem when he became king. And he did such a wonderful job, says Akinna, Gambachol Asher Ligdar, Vigdar, He was so great that no one arose like him since Myshrabainu. The Kinna Yermiyo compares in Mamash to Myshrabainu. But what happened was he thought he eradicated all of Aidazara. And he gets a message from Pari from a tribe that I want to come through and I'm going to fight Midian, I'm going to fight another country. Let me pass through your country. And he said, No, you can't pass through. Why can't you pass through? He says, because the Pasik tells us that when Klaisol is doing good, not only will we not have war, but, a sword won't pass through your country. So of course, if we have peace, what does it mean a sword won't pass through my country? It must mean that even an army going to fight another country won't pass through our country. And therefore, he doesn't let him go. But Yermio tells me we're making a mistake. As uh, Kinna tells us, This hate of Vaytazara was so strong, it stuck to them. You didn't get rid of it. You didn't eradicate it. You know why? lizdar. They would take their double doors and they would affix their Vaytazara onto those doors. So when the soldiers would come in to check all the homes, make sure there's no Vaytazara, they would open up the doors, they'd look around, there's no zara. But when they would close the doors... The Veidah was there. But Yeshio didn't know that. And Yeshio said, no, there's no Veidah And Yirmiyahu said, no, you're making a mistake, but he didn't listen. And what happened was, the, they went to a different Navi. If you're, uh, the first rabbi doesn't work, you go to the next rabbi, and you ask him for what he says until you uh, shop around, you get the answer that you want. Things haven't changed much. And they went to Chilkiah, And uh, they went to Chulda and they asked her, and she says, yes, of course, you should go and you should fight to be successful. And they went, they had the war, and Parai, Melech Nechayim, Parai Nechayim, tells him, he says, look, why are you doing this? Hashem told me, he said, since he had a Nevoah, that you should let me through and we're not going to fight. Why do you want to cause a fight? He says, no, you can't come through. And he says, fine, I'm going to go and fight you. And Pari came with his army, Pari came with his army, and he told all the soldiers to aim at him, to aim at the king, at Yeshio. And they aimed at him, and 300 arrows hit him, and it pierced his body. It's his body had so many holes, like a sieve, like a sifter. And he was lying there dying. And he told his, his uh, soldiers to take him away, and he was buried in a proper burial place. But before he died... The Kina tells us, "Aydenu aitzim ainov, v'gavim nechetsim." As he was closing his eyes, and all these arrows were going in, "Chetzar to chetz, moridem Arrow after arrow was piercing his body. V'izikubay shleish mei as he was pierced with three hundred arrows. Ruah sefalso cheftem epiu, his his lips opened up. at who Hashem ki marisi and he said, "Hashem is a tzadik. Hashem is righteous." Hashem is right, I should have listened to his Navi, to Yumi and not, and not done this. And because he admitted at the end that Hashem was right, the kina ends off, For 22 years, Hashem went and he pushed off the Churban. The 22 isis of, of the olive which is why this kina goes in the letters of the olive What happened was, over here is difficult to understand still of why you make a kinna for one person. Okay, so he messed up. He went and he got killed, but why do we say a kinna? And we see from here, we discussed last year that opportunity was lost because Yeshua was doing such tremendous things. Yeshua went and he paid money for the Mishkan to be, for the base finish to be fixed up. And when they were doing that, the, the king God went and he found the Sefer Torah, And he opened up the Sefer Torah, And it was by the Teichichais. And they told the king. And the king heard this. He says, Aleinu lahokim, We have to fix this up. And he gave such a strong push to eradicate the Vaidazara. And if he would have lived longer, then he could have completed the job. And we wouldn't have lost the Besamigdash. And that's why it says, That's why he cries for him. Because it's a tremendous lost opportunity. In fact, this opportunity lost was so tremendous that in the Navi itself, the end of Diver Yom tells a very frightening thing, which is where these words come from. Perak hey Hey, Pasef Hafei, V'yikaynin Yomiyo al-Yashiyo. Yomiyo cried over Yashiyo. V'yomini kol ha-sharim v'ha-sharais al-Yashiyo. Anyone who cries and makes up songs and Kinnis over Yeshio Adayim until today, but yitnum lechayk they made it as a chayk al Yisrael vaykesuvim ala kinnis they made it a chayk to include this kinnah. What does that mean? Says Rashi. He was domelahem shum tsar, whenever Klai whenever will experience pain, ubechia and an opportunity to cry, they're going to cry over something. Shehimikainen uboichem amoira. Anytime something happens, in whatever generation it's going to be, something bad happens and they're crying, they should remember, Maskirim Zet They should remember this pain. Chayk, it's a law. And Rashi says that means anytime throughout history, any anytime throughout history there's a problem and we cry and we're in pain, we should remember, Bekenyim Yashio. Dugba Like on Tishavov, Shemaskirim Kinais al Harugim, Kain Yifkun Almais, Yeshio, and that's where we also cry over Yeshio. And the question is why? If something happens today, something terrible happens. What does that have to do with Yeshio? So besides as we explained, lost opportunity, there's something else that we see from here. Obviously, there's something from then that still affects us today. And if he can go from one navi to another navi to get his answer which means he did not listen to what the Novi was telling him, did not listen to, to what the Das Ter was telling him. And because of that, eventually the base finish was destroyed. You now, uh, Tsar Nikolai I, who was a, a, a vicious king, he's the one who implemented the Cantonists. Every, all these kids, six years old and up, were taken away and lived with a, a Russian peasant family. And then later, at the age of 12 or 15, sent to the army for 25 years to eradicate Yiddishkeit. He built a whole network of railroads across Russia. And one of the things he did, he built a railroad from connecting Warsaw to the Austrian-Hungarian Empire. He didn't do it so much to help his people. He did it to squash rebellions. It was more of a military railroad. And it was many, many, many hundreds of kilometers. And when it was finally finished, it took many years to do, and there were many people working on it many people many slaves working on it we got killed serbs serbs finally in the year 1848 it opened and to open it there was going to be an inauguration he was going to ride the train tsar nikola is going to ride the train and he's going to make stops and of course by every stop there's going to be celebrations for the king one day the governor of Lumja summons the head of the Lumja kahila. His name was Rabbi Stroll Davinsky. And he says, Rabbi Davinsky, I'm sure you heard about the travels of the Tsar. He goes, Yes. He goes, Well, guess what? The Tsar is coming to Lomza. How is the Jewish community going to be Makabul him, the Tsar Nikolai? So right away he thinks to himself, oh, I wish we just dropped dead. But he has no choice. And he starts to explain, Of course, we're going to go, we're going to clean up our homes, we're going to decorate our streets. And all the children are going to come out. We're all going to be dressed in our Yant of clothing. We're going to carry the Sifritairah. We're going to bring him into our shul. We'll make the bracha for him and for the Caesarina, his wife. And we'll give him a tour of our hospital. Brand new Jewish hospital. And the governor says, fine, very nice. The government will pay 50% of your costs. Okay. He goes back and he runs right away to the Briskorov. Rabbi Yeshua Leib Diskin, and he tells him what's going on. And Yeshua Leib Diskin says, so what do you tell him? And he repeats what he told the governor. So Yeshua Leib says, oh, very good, everything's excellent. The only thing is, you shouldn't be there. And he hears this, he says, the Rosh cool, the head of the kahila. And Yeshua Leib Diskin says, everything's very good, you shouldn't be there. Okay, he leaves. They spend the next few weeks preparing for this. And sure enough, the time comes and if you saw Davinsky he keeps on thinking to himself, he didn't really mean I I shouldn't be there. He probably meant I shouldn't be the only one there, I shouldn't be taking care of it, but on the head, how can I not be there? Sure enough, they show up, and the Tsar comes, they lead him through the streets, and all the kids are there singing. They bring him inside the shul. they greet him with the safe retire, they make the bracha, they gave him a bracha, and they gave a bracha for Sazrina, his, his 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 wife. And then they brought him to the hospital to see. It was a brand new modern hospital. It was built in Lamjah. So they're giving him a tour. They bring him to the room. And he walks inside and says, why? The windows are so big. There's going to be a draft. The windows should be smaller. And told Davinsky says, we understand that. But we did research and we realized that the sun that comes in, it really helps the patients. They continue to walk. He goes to another room. And he sees there's four beds. So the czar says, four beds? A room like this, you can put in 12 beds. He says, yes, yes, Your Highness, but we did research and we realized that there are fewer patients, they're going to heal quicker. He's walking down the hallway and he says, you know, the paint is so bright. It's such a bright paint. It'd be better just the white walls. And He says, you're right, but we did research and we realized that certain colors are better for the patients. The next thing he knows, there's two guards next to him. They pick him up and they carry him away. They throw him in jail. Everyone knows what's going on. And word spreads quickly throughout the Jewish community. The czar finishes his tour. Some other guy steps up, finishes the tour, and they go off. And the, the, the are cool, the head of the community, sitting in jail. Of course, money starts to change hands very quickly. And they bribe the guards. And the guard says, look, I'll let him out, but he's got to leave town. Otherwise, i, I got to say he escaped. And he left in the middle of the night with his family, and he ran away. And he made his way to Eretz Years later, Bishul Lake Diskin, also came to Eretz Yisrael. And when he heard Yeshua Lev Diskin came to Eretz Yisrael, even though it was many years later, he came, of course, to greet Yeshua Lev And of course, he knew right away that he has to apologize. See, so right away apologizes to the Rav. He says, I'm sorry, the Rov told me something and I didn't listen. And Yeshua Lev shook his head. He says, but I just have one question. How did the Rav know what was going to happen? He says, very simple. He said, I knew that you put your life into building that hospital. You're the one who collected the money. You agonized over every single detail. And there was no way that you were going to allow someone else to give you their opinion of how it should be. The problem is that when the Tsar gives someone his opinion, the only response is, yes, right away, and, I'll, and you change it right away. You argue with the Tsar three times. There's no way they're going to let you live. And that's what Yeshua like just told him. And he realized his whole life was changed because of that. He lost his place of living, his pranasa, his family had to run away, all because he didn't listen. And this was with the best of intentions. How often do we hear things we don't listen because we know better? Perhaps that's why the Navi was crying, that when a Navi tells us something, when a das tare tells us something, we don't listen. Of course we don't listen. We don't say, of course. It doesn't make sense what he's saying. We see we know better, he doesn't understand really. He's a nice guy, but he doesn't really get it. If he'd be more in the street, he would understand better. And that's why what we'll we hear when Yeshio did not listen to Yemio, and because of that, the base of Middash was lost. Yeshio. Remember what the person who caused pain did inside, referring to Titus. Sholov He took out his sword and he entered inside the Kyush Kadashim. Ketimei lechem upon him. upon him. And he, he stabbed the parechis that has a face and two sides. It was woven that you can see the design on both sides with tremendous chachma. And blood came out and he said, I killed Hashem. Both, as we know, the first base and the second base Middish have in common that... Both of them, as we're going to see throughout the Kinnah, was destroyed. It says, of course, the Shekhinah was not destroyed. What happened was, the Shekhinah left. And after the Shekhinah left, just remained a building stones. And that is what was destroyed. We know by the first base of Mikdash, when Nebuchadnezzar came, he was undecided if he should attack Amain or Eretz Yisrael. He was trying to figure out what to do. So he decided he's going to go we do a test. He took out some arrows from his quiver and he started to shoot the arrows. And he figured, shoot it, see which direction he should go. And he started to shoot it. And every direction he shot it, whether it was northeast, west or, so- or south, they all flew towards Eretz So B- 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 Nebuchadnezzar realized that I'm supposed to go and conquer Eretz And he went there. When he arrived at Eretz he sent his general, Nebuchadnezzar, with 300 mules, each of them car- carrying hardened axes with special metal on it. And he came to the gates of Yerushalayim of Yer- and he tried to break in. He couldn't break in. So he started to take the axes off the mules and started to hit the gate with it. And he was hitting it so hard that eventually the axe broke. So he took another one. He started to hit it. And it hit it and then it, it broke. And he kept on doing that until eventually he went through all the axes of all 300 mules and he couldn't break in. He says, obviously, it's one thing to attack Eretz Yisrael, it's another thing to get into Yerushalayim. He took the last axe in a frustration, he tossed it at the gate, and the gate broke open. Realizing that Hashem does want him to go and, and, to, uh, and to attack. But he realized that if Hashem could orchestrate it so perfectly, where the arrows should go and how to break into the gate, Hashem takes everything into consideration and he got very scared. And Yomar he says he, later on, Abu Zeradim became a ger because of that. But Nebuchadnezzar did not become a ger. Nebuchadnezzar remained with his cruelty to us in everything that he did. In fact, when he saw the prisoners, the Jewish prisoners leaving and going towards Bavel, and he sees them, and he sees a group of people walking, he turns to his general and says, who are these people walking? He says, what do you mean? Those are the Jewish slaves that we captured, Jewish prisoners. He says, what? Those are the prisoners? Why are they walking straight? Immediately they went, they filled up barrels with sand, and every Jew had to carry this barrel of sand, and they had to walk bent over, carrying. Again, carrying something that they knew had absolutely no value and no benefit to anybody other than to cause them pain. Unfortunately, throughout the ages, the Gaim learned from this. The was cruelty, in fact, the Buchanetzer knew so much about Yiddishkeit, the Buchanetzer warned all his soldiers do not let the Jews stop for a moment and daven. Because if the Jews stop and daven, Hashem is going to listen to them. And any time a Jew would stop to daven, they would rip him apart limb by limb. Make sure they wouldn't stop. Only once they got to Nahar Paras, which we'll see later, to the Euphrates River, were they able to sit. And there they davened, there they cried. And Nebuchadnezzar says, Adav Eretz Yisrael, Hashem will listen to them now. But this cruelty was something that went on. The grandson of the Rugasabaisim, or Yeshua Grunwald, who took over for his grandfather in Chust, became the rab of Chust when his grandfather was Nifter in 1910, and he was the rab of the Kehillah over there. And after the war, he survived the war, he came to a bar park, and he opened up Kehillah, the Chust Kehillah in Barah Park. He has a safer. Ain demo. Tears of the eyes. I didn't that say for your rights of what happened to his killer during the war. It's something that you really can't say over. But he wrote it. And it happened. And it happened to us. It happened to, to our fellow brothers and sisters. And we hear this story. And we think about what they went through. Is this the worst thing that people went through? We should know one thing. Hashem, there's one word Hashem never says. Hashem never says, oops, uh-oh. If something happens, it's supposed to happen. And if it's painful for us to hear about what I'm about to say, you can imagine how painful it was for those who were watching it, and how painful it was for the person who was going through it, but it's much more painful for the Rabbi Yisholai who is doing this. And just like a parent will bring his child to the doctor to get a shot and as the child's getting the shot he sees a doctor coming with this knife to stick into him and the kid's screaming out, Mommy, Mommy, help me! And instead of Mommy, Mommy, help me Mommy holds him down so the doctor could stab him and the kid will never understand why until much, much later. And it hurts the mother much more than it hurts the child. And that's the pain that Kashborhu goes through. And he writes that his killer was taken away, but his killer wasn't that big to have a train station. So they made them march to another city where there was a train station where they could take them away. And they had to march with German efficiency in groups of four straight. And they came to a long bridge, and they had to cross the bridge. And when the first group came to the end of the bridge, they stopped everybody it seems like they were waiting for the trains to show up on the other side of the bridge. So we were standing there. The sun was beating down on us. And of course, the order came. Not only could we not sit, we had to stand in perfect formation. We couldn't move. We were standing there for about five minutes. When one of the commanders walks by, evidently he was bored. And he barks out an order. And he says, anybody who soils my bridge going to have to clean it up. At that time, the Chusta Rebbe writes, or Yeshua Grunwald writes, we were unfortunately, many of us suffering from many different illnesses. Everyone was suffering from dysentery, which means you lose control of your bowel movement and terrible bacteria, and it spreads, and, and a person starts to bloat. And we were all staying there, hundreds and hundreds of people and he gave the sword. anybody who soils my bridge will have to clean it up. They're going to have to lick it up. And it didn't take long. Twenty minutes later, a yid, standing a four rows in front and he writes, soiled himself and fell onto the bridge, went down his pants onto the bridge. And the commander got what he wanted. He was so excited. He runs over to him, starts screaming and yelling, you dirty Jew, clean it up. And the person was horrified. He starts crying. He's begging, please, I'm sorry. It was a mistake. I won't do it. Please. The Nazi took out his little whip and he whips him across the face, pushes him down. Clean it up. The guy lies down in position to to, to try to lick it, but he's so nauseated he couldn't do it. He starts crying. Please, please. The Nazi started kicking him and kicking him until he killed him. At that point, the trains came and we continued to walk. Can you imagine what cruelty a person can have. But Hashem doesn't say oops. And that was supposed to happen. And we don't know why. And then we look in this kina, and we see that we were always protected. We were always so excited to walk down the street. We were always so proud. We had the base of Migdash. Everything was perfect. And then they showed up. Go through the kina. Now when Titus came into the base of Migdash, he was full of and He starts to bang on the mezveah. And he says, You're a king. He turns to Hashem. You're a king. So am I a king. Let's do battle. And Titus went inside and he stabs the parachis and blood comes out and he thinks that he killed Hashem. And then he went and he burnt down the base of Middash. It was in flames. And they took 97,000 prisoners to bring them back after killing 1.1 million of brings back 97,000 prisoners for entertainment purposes. There were so many people as they were chasing the Jews, they were stepping over bodies. On the way back, on the ship on the way back, there was a tremendous storm. And the ship was in danger of tipping over. And Titus sticks out his fist to Hashem and he says, You're a very tough God, huh? You have a lot of power on water, It seems. You managed to bring a marble. That's how you got rid of Pare. Why don't you fight me on land? and then we'll see who will win. Immediately the storm stops, blue sky, calm waters, and Titus makes it back to land peacefully. Susie as as steps onto land. a little gnat, a little tiny gnat flies up his nose and hang out by his, on his brain and started to buzz around in his head. And it was terribly painful for him. And he spent weeks like this. It was was terrible and painful. At one time he passes by a metalsmith, a Jewish guy who was banging on his metalsmith, and the gnat was startled. So the gnat stopped. So Titus had some comfort. So he tells the Jew, he says, take your anvil, take your hammer, follow me around and bang. That worked for about 30 days. Then the gnat got used to it, and he continued... To cause him terrible pain. Eventually, because of this, he died. When he died, they opened up his head and they looked inside, and there was a net waiting, weighing over an ounce, sitting on his brain, which was caused him terrible pain. Before he died, he said he wants his body to be cremated because he doesn't want Hashem to judge him. See, so he won't find me. He says, Cremate my body and spread my ashes over the seas. And it's just what they did. A few years later, he had a nephew. We know his nephew. His name was Unclus. And Unklis conjured up his uncle in a dream. And he said, Uncle, in the next world, who's on top? And he asked him a few other questions. Because he was thinking about becoming a ger. And he said as follows. Let me do these words. He says, is it worth it for me to convert to a Jew? He says, I'll tell you. The Jews, you want to know who's on top? The Jews are on top. But it's not worth it for you to convert to be a Jew because there's too many mitzvahs and it's too difficult for you to keep all of them. She says, tell me, uncle, what was your punishment for what you did? He says, what was my punishment? Why don't you ask me what is my punishment? So what does that mean? He says, every day, all my... Ashes are taken and I'm reconstituted back into a human being. And I am burned again. And every day I'm burned again and again and again. And I feel the pain each day anew. And that is what is happening to me. We go through the kinnah. continues on the kinnah. How is it possible? That were not of an of you, Aaron's sons brought a fire into the base of Migdash, and they were they were burned. And yet Titus can walk inside the base of Migdash and nothing happens. And obviously, mm-hmm. this one brings a Zain inside and nothing happens. As we said, obviously the reason is because when they came in, the Shekhinah was there. And when Titus came in, the Shekhinah already, the Shekhinah already left. We go through. The long Kinnah continues on, He went and he told his four commanders, Listen here, we're going to destroy this space of Mikdash. Each of you take one section. You get the east, you get the west, you get the north, you get the south, and we're going to destroy the place. Kina continues, But there was a general, General Panger. General Pangar got the western side of the Harbais and the Kaiso of the beis to destroy. And he tried very hard, but he couldn't destroy it. As the Navi said, the western part will not be destroyed. But he tried very hard and it didn't work. And now he had no choice but to report back. And of course he couldn't say that it didn't work. So he said, I destroyed everything except for the wall. And the reason why I didn't destroy the wall is because later on, in a hundred years from now, in two hundred years from now, people are going to say, yeah, Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the base of Middash. People are going to say, really, what was it? It was this little house somewhere? It was a little building somewhere? So I left the wall. People should see how big it was and the honor of the king and the glory of the king, what you're able to do. So the king said, very nice, I'm glad you did it for my honor. But just to make sure, we're going to do a little test. You're going to climb up on top of the wall and you're going to jump off. If you live, that's going to show you did it for my honor. If you don't live, that will show you didn't do it for my honor. And of course, he jumped out, he had no choice, went on top of the wall, he jumped off, he did not live, because he did not keep it for the honor of a Barhu. Baruch Hu. A Baruch Hu is the one, in fact, who did not let him, did not let him destroy it. The king continues, in order to celebrate this victory, he went, and the king, the Vespasian went, and he minted a coin. We have copies of the coin today. On one side, there's a picture of a Spasian with a victory wreath. On the other side, there's a Roman soldier with a spear and a Jew sitting down. And it says a Judea capta, the, the Jew is captured. His son, Titus, not wanting to be left out, together with his brother, built an arch. It's called the Arch of Triumph, Titus' Arch. And the arch is still there today. In the well-known story of the Pantevich Who's was in Italy collecting for Yeshiva, and on his way to the airport, he asked the taxi driver, please make a detour to the arch. They come there, and he gets out, and he says, Titus, Titus, where are you? He says, I am going back there to Shrona where I have a Yeshiva with hundreds of Bachram learning, but what's left of you? There's nothing left of you. And a little while ago, someone showed me a picture, some guy came by and spray painted on Tita's arch, Am Yisrael Chai. <clears throat> So teachers is gone, and we're still here. One last thing as the kin ends. On the way back, there were three boatloads of children. These three boatloads of children were coming back as prisoners, meant for entertainment purposes of the Romans. And when they figured this out, there were boys on one ship and girls on the other ship, and they figured this out, they didn't know what to do, but they did not want to submit themselves to this and in a flash of Ruach HaKadosh, they realized that it's better not to submit themselves to this, and they jumped off, and they killed themselves. And when the boys saw that the girls should do this, they also did this, and they also jumped off to, to, uh, to do this. As we say in the Kinnah, Kisrem we, we jumped off, <clears throat> but we did not forget you. Kol zayt all this has happened to us, Hashem, we do not forget you, and we dove Hashem, please do not forget us. If it can happen the mothers ate the fruit of their womb, their own children, woe is to me. If it can happen, the ladies who cared so much about their children and, and loved them so much that they would measure them every year, how much they grew. And in gratitude, they would donate that money to the of HaMikdash and they can go and eat their children. <speaking in Hebrew> if it can happen that the, their hair was tied to the back, to the tails of horses and the horses would run through the street, al-layli. <speaking in Hebrew> goes on saying all these things. How the the mouth, if the, the tongue of the nursing babies are so dry, if one mother can turn to another mother and say, Come, let us cook our own children to eat. If it can happen after someone ate their child. Turns to another mother and say, "Come, let's go cook our children." And all the mother says, "I can't because I already cooked mine." This kina, very frightening kina, is written in the style of aleph mem. Tough, everything spells the word emes. We read this terribly frightening kina of all the things that happened to us, and this is one of the kinas that explain it in detail we say before we start each kiddo Aleph, Im and the next one starts with a tough, Im Te Chalna, as we see already that spells the word Emes we say Emes everything that the Kadesh is doing to us the Shem is Emes and we deserve it how could it be that parents can go and, and eat their own child You know, during the war during the Holocaust Yisrael Gustman, who later opened up the yeshiva Netzach Yisrael in Rechavia, survived the war, he was once walking with his wife and his two children. And the Nazi came over, ripped the child out of his hands, and smashed him, and killed him, he laughed, and walked away. If Guzman was happy, at least that he had the opportunity to bury his child, But he took the shoes and he bartered the shoes for some food. They were starving. And he came, took the food, gave it to his wife and to his daughter. And his wife looks at her husband and says, So Zev, why why aren't you eating? I'm not hungry. He says, you haven't eaten for days. What do you mean you're not hungry? You're starving. He says, how could I eat food that came from the dead shoes, from the shoes of my dead child who was killed in front of my eyes? I can't eat. I remember hearing the story and thinking he must have been very hungry, but he couldn't eat because he knows where this food comes from. Can you imagine how bad it must have been at times of the Churban? Where not only are parents able to eat that food, they're eating their own children. That's what the Kinnah tells us how bad it must have been. That parents, and yet they're eating tipuch and they're eating their own child. just tells us of a group of people. It says in the Kinnah, a group of people, There were people in a cave hiding, and every day someone had a job to go out and get food. And one day, it was someone's turn, he went out to find food, and he was looking everywhere, and he couldn't find. Finally, he sees a body, and says, oh, food! And he looks down, and he sees the body of his father. He says, I can't can't take the body of my father he quickly with his hands dug a grave and he buried his father comes back to the cave and everyone's there knew where's the food so i couldn't find anything nothing we're gonna starve not nothing someone else was there says you know what i'm gonna go get something he gets out walks around he finds a body some body parts and he comes back so oh, we have food they cooked the meat and they ate the first person turns to him after they ate and says, tell me, how did you find this? I looked everywhere, I didn't find anything. He says, I also couldn't find. But when I gave up, I started to walk, I tripped because there was some sort of a, a little hill. And I looked down and I realized someone just dug a fresh grave. So I quickly undug it to see where the body was holding. It was a fresh grave, so I took the body and that's what we ate. Then the person realized he ate flesh from his own father. And we say, when you say that those words, and says, <laughs> We still say the words MS. It's MS. But we know that everything happens is Mida, Mida, whatever happens to us. There was a person, he was about to get married, and he started to develop a problem. He was hiccuping, and it wasn't going away. It's one thing for 20 minutes and you try all these different things and then an hour and two hours two days, three days after a week he went to the doctor there's nothing I can do he was getting married in two months and this thing wasn't going away besides for the embarrassment, it was painful and after two months he went over to his rebbe and what's going on? anyways, turns out he said he remembers when they were in yeshiva there was a person there, not well he used to had a tick and he used to make funny sounds all the time, and he used to always make fun of him. So now he realizes he's getting paid back for what he did. It's not a half Nothing happens by itself. Everything we see over here, we say the words "ms." It was meant to be. But we realize, besides the word "ms," it says something else. Even though every sentence starts with the word "im techalna." In Tevashna, Aleph Mem, and then Toph, it also has Aleph Mem. Ever wonder why it is that we refer to Hashem as Avinu, malkanu if we know that a mother, as Rashi tells in a few places, and the says in a few places, a mother has more achmonas on a child. So why do we say Avinu, Malkenu when we daven for something? We should daven to our mother, our king. Why do we refer to Hashem as our father when we need something? We need Rachmanus. If you look inside over here, we see the Aleph Mem, Im, also mean Aim. And Aim is made up, if we think about it. Our first Golis ended up in Paras We were saved by Mordechai and Esther, which is Aleph Mem, which spells Aim. Before that, we were taken out of Mitzrayim by Aaron and Moshe, which spells aim. el Yahu will come to tell us of the coming of Mashiach, which el Yahu and Mashiach spell aim. Indeed, the very words of Vinu Malkeinu spell aim. Because when we dive into Hashem, we encompass in and Malkanu Whenever it is, it's actually we're diving to Hashem for the rachmanis of an aim. And we look inside of the ear, even though it says im, and then with the top MS, but before that, inside the word MS, we have the word aim. Even though we're admitting that we deserve all this, we say the word aim, we're asking Hashem to treat us that way. And that is what the is telling this to us. Many years ago, in Montreal, there was a, a lady was looking to redo her house she was doing a fine job but she wanted a chandelier she wanted what they call aha chandelier what's an aha chandelier aha chandelier is when someone walks into your house and sees a chandelier they say ah that's a chandelier that's what she was looking for and she was making everyone crazy looking for this perfect chandelier finally Vahia Yahim, after a year and a half she finds the perfect chandelier it wasn't easy to put in such a chandelier. She had to get a special electrician. They come in, they put it in, and now finally she's happy, which means her husband's happy, and life gets back to normal. A few weeks later, in the Montreal winter, she's outside shopping. She comes inside with her baby, dressed up in his bunting in his uh, snowsuit, puts him down on the table in his car seat. The baby was sleeping, and she goes to the kitchen and starts making supper. A few minutes later, she's a loud crash, coming from the dining room she runs inside the dining room her beautiful chandelier that she spent so much time getting crashed down right onto the table she looks up this big hole in the ceiling and the chandelier crashed down but at that moment she didn't care one drop about the chandelier because that chandelier fell onto the car seat that her baby was still in she gave out a yell, she runs over and she starts to get the chandelier off. Her daughter in another room heard the yell. She comes running in. And they're trying to get the chandelier off. Frightened because they didn't hear any sounds from the baby. And finally they pull the chandelier off. And the baby was still in the bunting. The snowsuit all zippered up. They unzippered the baby. And when they did that, the baby woke up and started to cry. But the baby was protected by the car seat on the bunting. The baby didn't even have a scratch. Two weeks later they made a suit and Duh. And the Rav of the Shol, who is the Splendor Abba's son, Rishai Yaakov Portugal, Shol Maragaila, he came to the Suda and he was speaking. And he said, Look at the kindness of a Baruch Hu. For whatever reason, you were supposed to lose this chandelier. The money involved, the work, the effort, you were supposed to lose it for whatever reason. But could you imagine the chesed of Hashem? How did you lose it? The same time you lost the chandelier your child was saved. And now, every single year, when you think about how you lost a chandelier, immediately, you can have the gratitude to God's Baruch Hu for saving your child. So God's Baruch Hu could have made you just lose the chandelier, and every time you think of that chandelier, you're always going to say, why did Hashem do that to me? I put in so much time and effort. If He didn't want me to have it, I shouldn't have gotten it. Why? And yet, every time you're going to think about the kindness and the chesed that God's Baruch Hu did for us, so we go through this kinnah, and each time we say, MS that all these bad things that happened as we deserved it, we should also realize the first word is Aleph mem, and that's how we can relate to the Baruch <clears throat> The next kinnah will be saying, Hashem righteous, Hifleisa these are the wonderful signs He showed us until now, Allah upon him. And to us we're embarrassed because of all the tests you gave us, which you gave us to refine us, to make us better. And yet we rebelled against you. Throughout this kina, we constantly say all these times that, upon him. Hashem, you are righteous and we are embarrassed by what happened. Hashem did so much for us and we did not appreciate it. And not only at times did we not appreciate it, but we used the very good that Hashem gave us and we turned that around and we used it against Hashem. It tells us, You gave us uh, wafers fried in honey you gave us the mon. And not only did we not appreciate the mon, but we used the mon to offer it to the eagle, hazav, that we built to rebel against you. And it continues on that each time, as we say in the end, all the times we had the the Mishkan and Shiloh Naiv and Givain, and then the Beisimigdash and, and nikhlamim. We ourselves, because of our own ra, because of our own evil, we caused its destruction. And this king of the Gemara tells us, Gemara and Sanhedrin tells us, and Avadazar tells us that one of the worst meadows a person can have is to be kafi taiv, It's to not be makri not recognize the good that was done to you. And even the more so, to take the very good that was done for you and use that against Hashem himself, referring specifically to the Mon, how we can take the mon, which was for us to survive in the in the, in the desert in the midbar, and to use that to give it to, to give it to the eagle. Think about what the mon is when we went and complained about the mon. we were punished. By anochash, enoch, the snake came and started to bite us. The says, the snake tells us, I don't understand you people. Me, says the snake, I was punished. I can eat many things, and yet I only have one taste. You only eat one thing, and you have many tastes. Says the snake, I eat everything I eat, tastes like dust to me. You only have to eat one." And you can have the taste of anything you want. And that you complain about. So therefore Shem sent the Nachash to, to teach us that lesson. When we think about it, how we survived on the Mon, why is it that the Mon fell every day? And we have to go out and collect it. Why didn't the Mon just fall well, once a year? And we collect it once a year and we have enough the whole time. Nimur says, because if someone is supporting somebody and you give them food once a year, so once a year he'll thank you. You give him food once a month, he'll thank you once a month. You give him food once a day, he'll thank you once a day. And Hashem wants to have that relationship with us every single day. And therefore he gave us the man only once a day. Because he wants that connection to us. If you think about it, how did the snake come to eat dust? So we know that when they eat from the eights, Hashem comes over to Adam and says, Adam, why do you eat from the eat? And his answer, of course, is, she made me do it. Chava's fault. And Odom got a punishment. Hashem goes to Chava, Chava, why ye f'neted us? He made me do it. Snake's fault. Chava gets punished. Hashem goes over to the Nachash and punishes the Nachash. Doesn't give him opportunity to respond. The explains why. But what was his punishment? Wherever you go, you're going to eat, whatever you eat is going to taste like dust. If you think about it, imagine someone comes over to you and says, for now on, wherever you go, there's going to be an all-you-can-eat doggies buffet wherever you go. Free. No one's going to complain about that. If the only thing the snake knows is dust, he doesn't know what anything else tastes like, what's he missing? He knows wherever he goes, he has food. Not like any other, other animal who has to fight for his food. The snake doesn't have to fight for its food. dev Lef, who's a rov today in Moshe Mataziyahu, used to be the Rav in North Miami Beach. He told me the following story, and I went on to a few times afterwards to, to make sure the story is, is accurate. He said he was, when he was a Rav in North Miami Beach, one time at night, around 9 o'clock, he gets a phone call from a congregant. He says, Rabbi, are you available now? He says, it's not really. unless that's very important. He says, well, it's very important. I'd like you to meet with somebody that I know. He says, okay, checks his calendar. How about next week, Wednesday night? He says, no, it's too late. It's got to be now. He says, now? He says, yeah, I'm the rabbi, it's an emergency. Okay, uh, I'll meet you at the shul now. Fine, I'm coming with him. They go to the shul, it's around 9.30 at night. Rav Lef walks inside to his office, opens up the lights. The door is sitting there waiting. A few minutes later, he hears the door to the shul open up. And his congregant walks inside with a... Uh, An older teenager, 19, 20-year-old. He brings a 20-year-old inside. He goes, Rabbi, this is a friend of mine. He needs to speak to you. And the congregant turns and he leaves, leaving this 20-year-old there. The rabbi never saw him before. So sit down. The guy sits down. And before he can say a word, he bursts out crying. He's crying and he's crying. His shoulders are heaving. Zev devil doesn't know what's going on. He feels so bad for him, he gets up, goes around his desk, pulls up a chair next to him, puts his arm around him. He stays with him. After about five minutes, he finally finishes crying. And he turns to Rabbi Lef, and he starts to tell him the following story. <clears throat> he says, when I was six years old, my mother died. I was an only child, and my father took very good care of me. My father was my father and my mother. He took excellent care of me. Now, I'm in college, on my second year of college. And yesterday, my father calls me up. He wants to meet with me. I said, sure. I came home. I took a bus home from a different city. And I met my father at a restaurant. I'm having a conversation. I'm trying to figure out what is going on, what's the occasion. My father sticks his hand in his pocket and pulls out an envelope. Slides it across the table. I said, What's this? He goes, It's yours. Open it. I opened up the envelope, and inside was a credit card. I said, Well, what's this? He goes, it's Your credit card. Wow, great. What's the limit? You'll never reach it. Don't worry about it. He says, well, I, can't, I can't pay for this. You're not getting the bill. Don't worry about it. Dad, thanks. You're the best. Yeah, sure. They continue eating a little. Then he sticks his hand in his other pocket and he pulls out another envelope. He slides it across the table. He goes, what's that? Why don't you open it? He opens it up and there's a set of car keys. He goes, what's this? Well, it's your new car. Your new ca- I don't have a new car. He goes, yeah, now you do. It's outside. Wow. He goes, yeah, that's what the credit card's for and everything else. Here you go. He says, wow, Dad, you're the best. Thanks. Sure. They're eating dessert. His father sticks his hand in his pocket again and pulls out a third envelope. Slides it across the table. Now the kid's enjoying this. He says, what's this? Why don't you open it up? opens it up. set of keys. Now, my father's not giving me two cars. I can only drive one car. What's this? He goes, these are keys to your new condo. It's my new condo? He says, yeah. He says, you got me a new condo? He goes, yeah. It's in your name. It's all yours. He says, wow, like, what's it for? Like, you know, when I have vacation or... Come home during semester. He says, well, not really. He goes, what do you mean? He goes, let me explain to you. You see, now that you're away in college, I met a nice lady. We've gone out a little. And we decided to get married. He said, oh, Dad, that's great. He says, yeah, there's only one thing. You see, she has some children. And she said she read up somewhere that it won't work out so well if you're around. So the deal was that... um, you can't be around. This is what do you mean, like, oh, I can only come home, like, on holidays? No, no, you, you can't come home on holidays. So how am I supposed to see him? When can I come home? He goes, well, that's the thing. You can't. So you got your car, you got your credit card, you got your house. I'm going to get up and leave now. And I change my phone number. And he gets up, and he leaves. And here's this kid crying, To Rabbi Lef, saying, my life is over. My father doesn't want to have anything to do with me anymore. And Rabbi Lef said to himself, wow, every teenager's dream. Nobody calling you up, where are you? Come home already. Stop spending so much money. Why aren't you here? You cannot borrow my car. This kid doesn't have any of those worries. Why is he so upset? Because he can't call his father? This was before cell phones. How often do you call your parents anyways? Every two minutes you don't call, your parents think you're dead call me, call me. And you don't call. So he won't call. And of course, as Reb Left said, the answer is very simple. Because everybody wants to have that relationship. And now this person, even though he has everything he wants, everything he could possibly dream of, he has, but he doesn't have the relationship with his father. And that's why he was ready to end it all. And that's what we go and we say this kin over here. We realize how desperate Hashem is for a relationship with us. And Hashem is constantly giving us things to have that relationship with us. But a relationship is only as strong as the weaker side wants it. And we go through this and we see all these things, every opportunity, Hashem Hashem And unfortunately, after each one, we say, upon him. And when we say all these, we have to realize that all these things that Kadesh Baruch Hu does for us is to have a relationship with us. L'cha. Next we will be saying, Kinah Chavalev, Adiri the cedars of Lebanon, the giants of Taira, Bale, Gomara, how much they exerted themselves to learn Taira, Domam Nishbach, their blood was spilled, who are these? These are the Asar Ruge and over these, I cry and my eyes overflow with tears. This is the well known incident of the Sarugimalchis. The first thing we have to know is when we say this kinnah, it's not written in a historical way. From this kinnah it looks like as if they were all killed in one time period, which they weren't, it was over a period of more than fifty or sixty years of when they were when they were killed. We say this kinnah because this is the first kinnah that is not directly related to the korban Bayis Rishan or to the korban Bayis We say this kinnah to recognize that all tragedy stems from the korban. All tragedy stems from not having the Bayi Simigdash and not having Hashem live among us. And that's why this kinnah is included. We say it today, we also say it on Yom Kippur for very different reasons. And also for a similar reason. While we cry over it today, on Yom Kippur we say it because in Yom Kippur we are so close to Hashem. We're mamish to of Nim. We're inside. And we're inside Hashem. We, we bear our hearts and we say over this Kino. But on Tishabav, we don't have to be Lefnaivil of to bear our hearts because the Shairish is today. We go through the Kino to discuss the tragedy of what happened. The king came to Klai to the Rabbanim and said, Tell me, what's the locha if you kidnap somebody and you sell them? They said, oh, the is if you kidnap someone, you sell them. Chay of Misa. So the king says, well, I looked through the history records. I see that there are people who kidnap somebody. The Shvatim kidnap Yisif but I don't see anywhere where they were held accountable. And Yisuf is screaming out for justice. I, the just king, will go and bring him justice. So Shmuel Kaim Gadol said, give us some time. How to deal with this? And says he went up to Shemayim, he davened, His Yishom went up to Shemayim, and he heard over there that Shem saying, this is my takana, this is my Zeira, and you should accept it. And he came down, and that's what he told him, and they accepted it. Go through the kinah. The first one, what happened was they wanted to kill Rav Shimon, and they wanted to kill Kain Rav Rav Shimon Gamaliel and Rav Yishmal Gadol. Each one said, kill me first. I can't bear to see the pain of my friend. So they did a, they did a lot, a lottery, <clears throat> and it was decided. That Rishmal Kain is going to go is going to go first. Rishmal is going to go first, and they went and they killed him. Then they turned to, as the Kinnah says, Mizera Aaron Al Benegvira, and they killed Rishmal Ben Elisha the Kain He was a very very handsome person, and the daughter of the governor said. Don't kill him in such a way, give him to me. And they said, No, the decree is we have to kill him. And he killed him. But then he turned to his daughter and says, But for you, I'll give him to you. And they took skin off his head. And that is how they killed him, peeling the skin off his face. And they put it on a bust. And that's how he gave it to his daughter to, to enjoy. The kid continued to the next one. to Rabbi Akiva. They came to, to go and to, to, uh, to yes. kill Rabbi Akiva. And we know the famous thing that Akiva was caught for teaching Torah. And his Talmudian says, Rabbi, why are you teaching Torah? You know you're going to get killed. And he said with the famous marshal, with the fish, that fish was swimming back and forth. And the fox comes and says, why, why are you swimming around so much? He said, what do you mean? They're coming after me with nets. So the fox says, here, come on the shore. There are no nets over here. And the fish said, you're the one they call smart.'" In the water, I have a chance to live. On the ground, I'm sure going to die. You know, Shira of Gifter would say, he says, you take someone, a little kid who has a goldfish that he won by a carnival. Look at the fish in the fishbowl. You get up in the morning, the kid comes to look. and He sees the fish just sitting there. He says, Tati, the fish is dead. The fish is dead. And you want to show him the fish is not dead, you take the fish and you pick it up, take it out of the water. And all of a sudden, the fish starts thrashing around. He says, oh, he's alive, he's alive. Give him to me. He said, no, no, no. If he stays over, he's going to die. He's thrashing around now because he's about to die. He belongs in the water. He's resting in the water. The water, he can stay alive. And that's what Bakiva said. But they came and they caught Bakiva and they started to torture him. And they tortured him for many days. And finally, on Yom Kippur itself, Turnus Rufus said, that's enough. You have to pull off his skin with an iron comb. V'sarquist V'sarai be with a comb, shall barzal of steel, lishtabra. And Yatun ishma se And then, as he's saying the word shema yisrael Shemel Kane of shema his soul went out. Ubaskel amra, Ashrachar of a praiseworthy you of a tahar bechal tahara. Then came the fourth one, which is ben Baver of Yehuda. And they went and they killed him, ben shibim shan of a chid they went, and he was been a, a very pure person, and they then killed him. Then came Ruchinib ibn Trajain. ibn Trajain at that time, was was uh, sitting and learning. They surrounded him with um, things of wool, so the fire should go very slow, and they should burn him in, in, in pain. And they la- and they, they set, and they set him on fire. Because they made the the wool in uh, in water. And as it started to burn, the executioner looks at him and says, "If I help you, will will I get a portion of I Abba? And he said, yes." And he quickly increased the fire, and he was uh, burnt up quickly and he died and but he took it away and he added firewood, and he was saved, and a basel came out and says, "Rehanino." And his executioner are together entering Elam Then we have Rav Chutzpis who was killed. Uh, Rav Yeshiv was, was killed. He was a cipher. And they had wild dogs come and grab his, his body and drag him around. That's how he was killed. And then Rav and ben Shumuah. Rav, Shumua, Rav Shumua was 129 years old and he was one day shy of his 30th birthday. And he said, "Please let me live just one more day, so I can say Shema." And they said, "No, because you're, you used your tongue to teach Tyre. They ripped out his tongue, and they threw it in the garbage where pigs were seen eating from it. Doesn't mention the last, where Lozeman and Shemur of Kanina and Chachinai, and some say Yehuda Ben Dama, who were also killed. All the way to the end of this Kino, we end on an uplifting note. And we say, You're in days of mourning. Your days of mourning are over. And now you should walk forth in Hashem's light. As we go over this kinnah, we say how these were killed. And how they were killed. You know, they say, Rabbi Kiva was killed, and he came out with the word Achad. He said his whole life he was waiting to give up his life. And now that the opportunity comes, shouldn't he be happy? So Rav Dov Pivarsky, it was who's Roshivan Panovich, when they're running away from the Nazis, they were hiding in different areas. They were hiding in a farm. And the Nazis were coming, they ran to the forest. They're running in the forest and they saw a hut. So they all ran into this hut that was hidden by the trees. And then all of a sudden, Dov Pavarsky leaves the hut and he goes to hide by another tree. The Nazis came, they're searching around, they didn't find them, they left. And after they all came together and they said, Rav why did you leave the safety of this place here? He says, it's a latrine. It's a, it's, it's a bathroom, it's an outhouse. They said, exactly, the Nazis, if they find us, they won't come in here. He says, I know. But I was scared they would find us and they would kill us. And if I would get killed while I'm in the bathroom, I could not scream out, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elkein, Hashem Echad. And if I'm going to get killed, I won't be able to scream out the Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokein, Hashem Echad. This is what we learn in this Maka, in, in this, in this Kinnah of the Suri Yerugim And we recite it because it all comes from Tisha B'av. You know, 11stream would often say there's only two things left that we have from the Churma V'Yis One is, we spoke about earlier, the Kaisa Moravi, the other thing that we have left from the Churma Yishim Eidash is Sinas Kino. Those are the two things we have left. We need to get rid of one of them before we can get the other one back in its glory. And that's the message of this Kino, Because the brothers sold Yosef because of jealousy. And that is why we know that the night of Pesach, the night of Tisha B'Av always come out the same night. The whole reason why we're down to triumph, Yosef went down to Mitzrayim, it all started... With Sina's and we say this kino. we realize all this terrible, terrible happenings is because of that sino. You see, over the, the Chavetz Chaim, Chavetz Chaim, when he was older, wasn't able to travel anymore anywhere. And he went to a Kinnah in Warsaw on Snius to speak to many ladies. And it was very difficult for him, and he came back. A few weeks later, he tells his son to uh, prepare a car, please, because he wants to go to a certain city to speak there. So he says, Tati, you can't, you can't travel, really. He says, no, really, I have to go. He says, okay, I'll try to arrange the car for you. But of course, he wasn't arranging any car. He knew his father can't travel there. He sees his father standing up, getting his cane, and walking out the door. He says, where, where are you going? He says, I'm getting to that village. that city. If you won't get me a car, I'll have to walk. Walk. He says, late 80s. So okay. He gets in the car. They remove the back seat. They put in a bed. He lies down the back of the car and they drive to the city. Comes to the city and there's a bris in town. He says, I want to go to the bris. They bring him to the bris. In a moment word spreads that the Chavetz Chaim is in town and everyone comes to this bris. They had the bris the Chodz Chaim asked the father of the Rakhonimu, do you mind if I speak? Of course. Chodz Chaim starts to speak, and he says over the following story. <clears throat> he says, many years ago in Baghdad there was a Rav, and the Rav was a wonderful person, a big time of and there was a person in Davening, in Shul, coming collecting. He's going around collecting from everybody, and he goes to the Rav, and the Rav gave him some money, when this person finished collecting, he realized that uh, obviously he doesn't have enough money, he wants more. So he made, went, went around round two. Going around round two, he comes to the rov as well. But the Rav was in the middle of Shema. So the guy shaking his hand like this, and the rov in the middle of Davening. And the guy's jingling louder, and the rov saying Shema, he can't do anything. So this guy takes his hand, he sticks it in between the rov and his sitter, and he starts to do this. The rov sees that, he looks up, and he smacks the guy in the face. Chutzpah is trying to Daven well then the guy finally got the message and he goes away the Rav finishes Shema starts down Shemesrei in the middle of he says you know what maybe, maybe that wasn't the right thing to do if the person was so desperate for money to do that he must really need it he quickly finishes Shemesrei looks around to see the person to apologize he can't find him he runs out of the shul to look for him can't find him starts to run to the other shul he's not around he asks around people say yeah they saw him but I don't know. they don't know where he is He spent the next few days looking around. He sent messages to other cities. He couldn't find them. Time went on. He forgot about it, and he continued to lead his community. Became a big talmachahem, and many years later, in his late 80s, he passes away. Chavetz Chaim saying over the story, it's written in Kol Kiseh Chavetz Chaim. If you want to look it up, and Chavetz Chaim starts to say over this person's din v'cheshbon in Shemayim. Comes up to Shemayim and they start judging him. All the sform that he wrote, all the chesed that he did, all the terror that he learned, all the terror that he taught. Beautiful. What a beautiful place in Gan Eden. They passed and he's supposed to get. When all of a sudden, Amal comes running and says, What? One second. The Gomorrah tells us. You hit somebody. You can't go and be in the, in, the, in the area of Hashem. You hit another yid. I said, What do you mean? You see what the person was doing? Bezain, Arav. You can't. He hit somebody. Okay. They reconvene. What are they going to do? And they came up with a plan for him. They said, okay, here's your choice. You can go to Gehenim just for a few moments, clear off that problem, and that's it. He says, I don't want to go to Gehenem. He says, not a problem. You can go down again. You'll be born for another 70 years. Make sure you don't hit anybody, and then you're good. He says, I don't want to go back down there. He okay, so go to Gehenim. Fine. They take him to Gehenim and he starts to walk there, and it gets hotter and hotter, and he says, it's getting very hot. He says, yeah, it's Gehenem. He says, I don't want to go. Okay, they bring him back. He says, I can't go. It's okay, you have to go down. I don't want to go down. Sends him back to Gehenna starts to walk. This happened three times. Finally, come back and say, No, what's the story here? He's okay, I can't go to Gehenna even for a few minutes. I'll go down again. But one condition. So, what's the condition? I want to be born missing both of my arms. He says, You can't be born missing both of your arms. There's no test. You can't hit anybody. He goes, That's right. No, 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 the whole reason you're going down there again is to see if you're going to do what you're supposed to do. I can't, I can't do that. And this whole thing went over again. And finally he says, okay, you're telling me I did a lot of mitzvahs, I have a lot of schar. He says, I want to trade half of it with half of my request. At least let me be born missing one arm. The chances of me hitting somebody with one arm, is still possible, but I'm not going to get to fight with anybody. So they discuss and they agree that he can be born with one arm. There's the Chavitz Chaim saying over the story, as I'm sure all of you can imagine by now, everybody sitting by this birth was crying because this baby was born with one arm. the Chavitz Chaim said, You can see I'm old, I can barely travel. But I heard such statements coming out from this city. People saying, What kind of God do we have? What kind of Hashem do we have? <clears throat> what could a little baby do wrong that a baby is born missing an arm? And people were speaking negatively about Akkadish Baruch Hu. I wanted to come and tell you how much this baby gave up to be born missing one arm. And yet, I mean, in Akash Baruch Hu's kindness, you were going and speaking against Hashem. We never know why things happen. But we know that what happens is supposed to happen. But we also know that when we read this Kinna, we see all these terrible things that happened to these Tzadikim. These are the closest ones to Akkadish Baruch Hu. And Hashem goes and he takes it out on the closest ones, because he doesn't have to take it out on everyone else. And we hear a tragedy happen to someone else. Besides, we're trying to help. We have to realize that we have to go and feel that really that should be happening to a lot of people. Many years ago, by the unfortunately, the, the many bombings going on Earth Eretz on the buses. Somebody once showed me had a picture of a cell phone. And he blew it up, big picture of a red cell phone. He says, why do you have a picture of a cell phone? He goes, look at the cell phone. So, yeah, he goes, that cell phone belonged to Malka. He goes, who's Malka? At that time she was so inevitable. she was a, a girl, she was blown up on the bus. He says, why do you have a picture of her cell phone? He says, look closely, he looks at the bottom of the cell phone, it said, She wrote on her cell phone, a not to speak Lashon hara.'" These are the ones that Karsh Baruch Hu goes. And these are the ones who are close to Karsh Baruch Hu. But it happens for a reason. And all the Shosh is on Tishvav. So we say this kinah thing, and we realize why these things happen. But there's one more thing. We always wonder why they happen. But okay, so Hashem has his reasons. So Shlomo Kluger explained very quickly that this was a tailor. And this was, he was an excellent tailor. And he was such a good tailor that the governor always used him. And, and, and Kluger said in this is a Marshall, he said he would make things for the tailor one time. The tailor said, the, the governor said, I'm having a, a ball and everyone's going to come and I have to be the best dressed person there. Spare no expense. Make me a beautiful suit. Mashka, the tailor goes, he makes him a beautiful suit and he uses threads of silver and threads of gold and puts some gems in it. And he makes him a beautiful suit. The governor is so happy. He says, take this bag, go to my, my treasure house, take whatever you want. And Moshka is thrilled. The rest of the advisors are furious that the governor is so close with this Jew. And they made up stories about him. They said, governor, Musk is laughing at you. He stole from you. He stole, what did you steal from me? He says, he went and he charged you for gold thread, but he used just a little of it. He charged you for gold, for silver thread. He just used a little of it. The rest is in his house. The governor starts to think maybe it's true. He calls the mushka and he says, tell me, did you use silver and gold in my suit? He goes, yeah, look how beautiful it is. He says, yeah, but did you use all of it? He goes, of course. He goes, prove it to me. Uh, how can I prove it? Prove it to me. Or I'm going to kill you. Uh-oh. So he says, fine, give me the suit. Takes the suit, puts it on the table, takes a scissor. He starts to cut apart the suit. He says, what are you doing? He says, well, if you want to know where all the silver and gold thread is, I'm going to take apart the suit thread by thread, then I'll line it all up and you'll count and you'll see it's all there. No, don't take apart the suit. So there's Shalem the Malachim saw what was going on to the Seiru Yomachis. And to Bishmol ben Elisha they said, Zut of v'zut Tara. This is his taira and this is his reward? And Hashem's response was, Be quiet. This was my gezeira. If you accept it, fine. If not, I'll return the world to Tayyip What kind of answer is that? Hashem should have said, I'm not telling you. I'm going to turn the world to Tayyip Says Hashem, if you want to understand the reason for everything, I'm going to have to unravel the world all the way back to when the world was Tayyip I'm going to have to unravel the world all the way to the beginning. You're in this world 70, 80, 100 years. and You want to say, I should understand what's going on for the past over 5,500 years? It's impossible. So even though we understand the Sherish, of all this comes from Tisha B'av, we have to understand that everything has a reason and a cheshbon. Our skin will be saying, Kino Chav Hei, M'Yitin Reishi Mayim, Only my head will full of water, Ve'eni M'Kar Noizlai, And my eye, my eyes, a fountain of tears. As Chalai Tapai Ve'olai, Yishish E'Kaholai, So I can spend all my days crying, for the babies and children that were killed. And we should all cry out, Oi, to all this. We should cry, Al We should cry over the house of and the nation of Hashem, we've fallen by sword. The skinner of goes on to describe not only the first kinah that is not directly related to the first and second Churban of Bias species and Biascheni, but this is also one that happened many years later, almost close to a thousand years later, and that is the episode of the tragic episode of the Crusades. And this kinah, we say, we declare that what happens, again, is because of Tisha B'av, and the Kinna goes through describing what happened by the Crusades. Mainly three countries called Shom, which is Spire, Worms, and Mains, these three communities. What happened was in the year 1095, Pope Urban II, who was living in, um, in France at the time, Clermont, and he said, We have to go, we have to liberate Israel from the infidels, referring to the Muslims. And they had a call of arms, everyone should go to come together, and they should go there and redeem Israel from the Muslims. And they affixed a cross to their clothing, which is where they got the name uh, Crusaders from the, croix, the, cro- the, the cross. On the way there, they said to themselves, why do we have to go and wait until we arrive to Palestine to kill infidels? There are plenty of infidels around here, referring to the Yidin, referring to the Jews. And they said no need to wait to get all the way there. And they started to kill out the Yidin on the way. Swarim say that everything is *mida keneg, mida*, And if Kalei is not going to go and show that desire to go back to Eretz then Kalei is going to show us others who have that desire for Eretz in between the weeks of Pesach and Shuas, the three communities of Shum, like we said, spire, worms, and manes, were massacred. And this is the tefillah that was enacted that we say the tefillah of Avrahamon every Shabbos because of what happened. May 3rd, in the year 1096, the Yiddin of Spire saw that the Ga'im were coming and they had a shul that was fortified. It was all closed off, and the, they all hid inside there. The mob came. They weren't able to break in, and they kept on trying to get in, and they couldn't. They went looking around town to find somebody. They found 10 yidin, and they killed these 10 yidin. They found some other people. They gave them a choice to convert or to get killed, tortured to death. Every single person agreed. There was only a few at that time agreed to get killed and not convert few days later, May 18th, they moved on to Worms and they started to kill out the eden that they can find. Many of the yidn went and they hid in the castle of the bishop. And the bishop promised them protection. However, when they came there, the protection was not given. He let them in and over a thousand, <clears throat> over a thousand yidn were killed. It was under Shredish, Sivan, they were saying we were saying halal when they were killed. The Eden were fighting back. One fellow, his name is uh, Simcha Kohn, he was managed to to get hold to hide a knife, and he stabbed the nephew of the bishop, and he killed him, whereupon they went, and they ripped him apart limb by limb. In Mainz, even though, again, they also paid for protection, the bishop gave them up, and they also murdered uh, well over a 1,000 Jews, Moving on to the other cities over there, Cologne, Trier, Regensburg, Metz, altogether killed over five thousand. Important to remember in those days, they killed them. It was torturous. They killed them with knives, swords, axes. It was uh, very gruesome. And that is what we say in this kino of what happened to uh, what happened to them. It didn't stop. There was a second crusade a little later, November 27th of 1095. Once again, Pope Urban II declares, volt, which means God wants, this is God's will that we kill them. And another between 60 and 100,000 Christians responded to the call, and they once again went together and, and started to kill, start kill Yiddin. This is the tefillah, like we say, we say of, of, uh, of Avarachman. So, when is it going to stop? Rui Waxman once said over that there was someone in his yeshiva wasn't well. And he went to visit him. And he wasn't well for a while already. And he's in the hospital. And the child's not responding. And the mother, of course, is sitting there the whole time. And while Rui Waxman was there, a nurse came to try to take some blood, a blood test. And she's looking around at the boy's hands, his arms, his legs. And the nurse sticks up her hands and says, I can't prick him anymore anywhere. He was pricked so many times there's nowhere to prick him anymore for a blood test, and she leaves to go call the doctor. Also the mother sticks up her hands and she says there's nowhere left to stab. You've done everything to us already. Isn't it enough? And you have to wonder, why isn't it enough? One of the trains that came to Birkenau, they let the train sit there for a while, hot, no food. They open up the doors. Half the people in the train are dead. Start pulling the people out. People are falling off. People are coming out. And somehow or another, there was a little child. There was a six-year-old child among everybody else which was unusual, they never made it that far. But he looked around, he didn't see anyone. His mother, didn't see his mother, didn't see anyone else. And he was thirsty, and all he knew was, he needs a drink of water. So he sees the Nazis over there, screaming and yelling at everybody. Obviously they're in charge. So this little kid walks over to the Nazi, he grabs hold of his leg, He says, please, could I have some water, mister? The Nazi sees that, He takes his gun, his rifle, and he smashes the kid on the head a few times until he collapses on the spot. Why did the kid go over to the Nazi? Because the Nazi's in charge. He doesn't know. He doesn't know. He knows he needs water. He goes to the person in charge. The Gemara has a question of a certain type of animal and says Does this animal belong to the Yam or does it belong to the shore, to the land? The Gemara says it belongs to the land. How do you know? It's always in the water. Some say he's talking about a seal. Uh, They call a. she, She says, "Look where it goes in danger. When it's in danger, where does the seal go? It runs to the ground. You can tell somebody where he goes when he's in danger. This little child didn't know better. He runs to the person in charge for his water. Where do we go when we're in danger?" Do we run to help for this person and that person? Or do we run to the base matters? Do we run to the to the tehillim? Do we run what we're supposed to do? We ask the question, Rabbi there's no more left to punish us, there's no more left to hit us. Hashem says, Do you turn to me when you need something? And that's what Hashem is looking for. These things will keep on happening until we turn to Hashem for everything. Next, Kinnah will be saying, Kinnah Chavav, Ouz Ba'alech, Yemiyo, went to the Kivrei Avais. <laughs> V'nama Tzomis, He says to the to the bones of them, Matem, Shaykh, Vais. How could you lie still? This Kinnah explains, Yemiyo, is trying to get Klaisel Shil Tshuva, and he's speaking to them and speaking to them for 40 years. For 40 years, Yomiyon and is trying to get Kaiso to do Chuva, And nothing's happening, they're not responding. And the king explains how he goes to, to the Avais and to the Mohais, trying to get them to intercede for them. What happened was, for 40 years, he's trying to go and to get Kaiso to do chuvah, no one listened him. Finally, after 22 years of this, Hashem tells the Yerimyo, I want you to write down Migilas Eicha, Perak Aleph, Beis, and Dalid, Even though the destruction didn't happen yet. But I want you to write it down as if it happened. And this way, when the people will see what you write down, they'll see this is serious, this is really going to happen. And maybe that will cause them to do truva. It didn't. In fact, at the time, after he wrote down those, those uh, three proclam, he was despised. And the king at the time, Yahyaqim, was very angry at him and he threw him in jail. At least we don't do that. They threw the Navi in jail, the king threw the Navi in jail for giving this nevuah, But that did not stop Yemriyot. And even though when he was in jail, he continued to write it and he gave it to his Talmud, Baruch ben Neriyah, and he took this and he gave it to the king. The king looks at it and says, what's this? He says, what the Navi wrote. He says, what does it say? He starts to read from the beginning. Yushalayim sits by itself. And Ya'yakum, the king says, okay, as long as I'm king, I don't care. So he says, the next pasach, She cries bitterly in the night, Yushalayim. Okay, as long as I'm king. Golsa Yehuda Amaini. Yehuda is going to go into Golas and suffer. He's okay. As long as I'm king, it's fine. Dark in and velus, All the roads Yushalayim will be in velus. That's fine, as long as I'm king. The enemies of Yushalayim will be its leaders. And that, the king also got upset. He says, that can't be. He got up, he took a knife, and he cut out all the names of Hashem. In that megillah, and he threw it into the fire, and he desecrated Hashem's name. And that is what happened with Yirmiyoh trying to get them to do tshuva. It didn't work. It's interesting. Medrash tells us that Yimio and Navi was friends with Nebuchadnezzar as children, and they were playing together once, and all of a sudden, Nebuchadnezzar says, "You know, when I'm older," I'm going to go and attack Eretz Yisrael, attack Yerushalayim, burn the base of Middash and kill all the people there. So Yermiel looks at his friend and says, What? Wow, that's a lot of stuff you want to do when you grow up. He says, Could you do me a favor? He goes, What? Could you spare me Yerushalayim? You can attack Eretz Yisrael, spare me Yerushalayim. He says, No, I'm you, taking Yerushalayim too. He says, Could you spare me the base of Middash? No, I'm burning it down. Could you spare me the people? Not on killing them all. He says, Nebuchadnezzar, what kind of friend are you? You're my friend. Help me out. Do something. He says, All right, I'll tell you what. Whatever you can save from the afternoon until sunset, that I'll give you. Promise, promise. Deal, deal. That was the deal they had. Years later, Nebuchadnezzar comes to destroy Israel. And Hashem speaks to Yemiyah when he says he has to go to a city called Anasais. Go to Anasais and speak to the people there. So Yermio goes to Anasais and speaks to the people there. He gives over the message from Hashem and he finishes. And he starts to come back to Yerushalayim. He comes back to Yerushalayim. And he sees smoke coming up from the area of the base of And he's very pleased. He says, oh, Baruch Hashem, they brought the carbon Talmud. He comes back close and he realizes that's not the carbon Talmud, but Yerushalayim is being destroyed. And he realizes that Nebuchadnezzar kept his word destroyed everything, but a Kodesh Baruch took him out, so he shouldn't be there from that afternoon until the evening, so he shouldn't be able to destroy anything. And this is what Yermiyo and Navi had to go through. And we're not discussing now how Yermiyo can have a Navuah, we know Navuah has to be basimcha, and how could he do this and have this reaction to discuss for another time. But this is Yermiyo's frustration. Yermiyo, the, the kina tells us, he goes over to Avram Avinu. Zok bavuram. Avram Avinu, cry for them. How can you just lie here? So Avram goes, he dabans to Hashem, and he says, Avuram. Did I allow myself to be tested 10 times for nothing? And this is what happens to my kids? And Hashem says, Yeah, They did a vaytizar. They exchanged me for somebody else. So Yumio goes to Yitzchak. Yitzchak, daban for them. Screaming out and to Hashem. He says, I gave. I was ready to give him my life. And this is how you treat them? He says, yeah, they did it by the Zara. And he goes through all the others. And he goes to Yaakov. And he goes to Himais. He goes to Meshur Beinu. And he says, What happened to the promise? Nothing works. He goes to Leah, and it doesn't work. Zilpah, Billah, it doesn't work. And the minister says, and Rachel cries for them. And that's the famous psukim we have. <laughs> Rachel cries for her children. <clears throat> and Hashem answers back. <laughs> you don't have to cry, you don't have to shed tears. <laughs> They're going to return. What did Rachel say different than everyone else? Rachel said, Hashem, what, what are you jealous of? He said, what do you mean? They did a zara. So Rachel says, you mean those silver and gold things and those stones and wood? Hashem says, yeah. So Rachel says, I wasn't jealous of my own sister, my own flesh and blood. I was ready to give up Yaakov. I was ready to give up everything for her. And you're jealous of stones and, and pieces of wood and silver and gold? And that's when Hashem responds, mida, mida. fine for you, Rachel. They will come back. And That is what the Kinnah tells us. To go and say this Kino, you have to understand the frustration that that Yimio had. We know the famous story with Ruchain Shlavitz that he went to daven by Cave of Ruchel, and he was davening there. And the person who drove him, who was supposed to wait outside, went inside to hear what Ruchain Shlavitz would say. He would say, "Rachel, I know Hashem told you to stop crying. bechi." But me, Chaim, I'm begging you, Mama, Veint, Mama, Veint, continue to cry. On the way back, this Talmud turns to Rashi and says, "Rashi, I don't understand. But Kaddish Baruch Hu tells Rachel not to cry. What gives you the right to tell her to cry? He says, what don't you understand? A father knows that everything is what's going on with his children. He knows what's good for them, what's not. A child can tell, a parent can tell a child, don't cry, don't cry, it's Okay but a child can always look to a parent and say, cry for me, help me. So Hashem can tell Rachel, don't cry. But me, Rachel's child, I can say, we have so much taurus. we need so much, cry for me, don't stop crying. But if you see the frustration of your had for 40 years, telling us what's going to happen. I remember my father telling me, he was Yeshiva, in Yeshiva in a place called Feri at And he was there, When all of a sudden the arrow cross, these young teenage Nazi wannabes showed up with sticks in 1942 when they started beating everybody. If you don't leave, we're going to kill you. So yeshiva was closed. They all ran home. My father lived in a city called Ungvar. Told me it took him six weeks to get home. He gets home. He comes to his house. He was together with 11 other friends from that yeshiva. They all went home. His mother is so excited to see him. His father comes home from Shoal, and his first words are, "Why well, are you home? He says, there's no more yeshiva. It's the middle of the What do you mean no more yeshiva? He goes, yeah, the Nazis came and closed the yeshiva. He says, the Nazis? What, you think this is Poland? It's ridiculous. Go back to yeshiva. He says, no, the Nazis, there's no more yeshiva. They didn't believe him. My fa- And he said his father didn't want to tell him go back to yeshiva. So they didn't know what to do, and they're all discussing it. And they decided they have no choice. They're going to run off to the forest of Ukraine to fight the Nazis. They did not want to get killed. They saw what's going on. It was only a short while later, and the yeshiva guys, how well could they fight in the forest? They turned around to go back. And a little later, the whole town was gone. All the hidden were taken already. Can you imagine the frustration? You warn somebody if something's going to happen, you know for sure it's going to happen. They don't listen to you. You're wrong. It's not going to happen. That's what Yirmiyahu was doing. Yirmiyahu for 40 years is telling Kal Yisrael, what's going to happen? And we have to remember that any generation, the base of ministry was not rebuilt. It's as if it's destroyed. So we think to ourselves, if hey, the Navi would tell me, believe me, I would change. Well, guess what? It's another year and the base of was not rebuilt yet. So how well are we listening? How an uplifting fire burned in me when we left Mitzrayim. How excited we were. Let me think of what happened to us and how what happened to us when we left Yerushalayim. This kino is a study of contrast, as it compares in kino and aleph how excited and how full of hope and motivation and how good things were when we left Mitzrayim and then how sad things were, and how down looking and bad it was and painful when we left. Yerushalayim. This goes all the way to the end of the kinna, which after this, we're going to stand and sing it together. But the last part, which ends in an uplifting note finally, of even though this, this how was with and but how it's going to be, Bishuvi, Yerushalayim, how it's going to be when we turn to Yerushalayim. As you said... Earlier, the night of Tishavav is always the same night of Pesach, which we discussed these two things: the night of Pesach, v'tesi, mi'mitzrayim, and the night of Tishavav, v'tesi, mi'yrushalayim. And we know our task is to switch it back, to learn from v'tesi mi'yrushalayim, and to turn that back to b'shuv Yerushalayim, so we can finally go back, mi'eteshem, to Yerushalayim. In the late 1400s, in Spain, when they wanted to go and kick out the Jews, King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella wanted to go and kick out the Jews or make them convert. And they passed a law in 1482 that they have to leave. And the Cincino family of Italy, a very powerful family, the Cincino family with bribes and other connections managed to push it off. They pushed it off for a few years, and then again the decree was they should leave, and again it was pushed off, and then the decree came, finally they have to leave. And finally, in March, 30, in, in March 31st, 1492, March 30th, 1492, they they signed the final decree that they have to leave, and indeed, August 2nd of 1492, they left, which was on Tisha On the way out, the Barbonell who was offered to stay. He didn't want to stay, he wanted to be with, together with the Yidin. On the way out, the Ganyan were coming and making fun of the Yidin. And the Yidin who tried to sell their things, they can barely get pennies on the dollar for it. Why should we pay a dollar? We can buy your house for a penny. And as they were leaving, the Barbanel told them to play instruments, to play happy music. And they looked at him, you know, okay, it's, it's still it's still Why are you playing happy music? Because he was concerned that people would go and maybe convert or maybe lose heart. And he said, play music. And someone said, yeah, but it's Tishabav. And he said, Yidin only cry when we were kicked out of Eretz Yisrael. Yidin don't cry when they're kicked out of one Gaulus to go to another Gaulus. We're being kicked out of here, we'll go there. We're kicked out of there, we'll go there. A Yid's place is in Eretz Yisrael. And that's when a Yid cries. Only, only B't'saisi Oh, Only B't'saisi And again, as a study in contrast, the kinah tells us of a story of the daughter of Nakhdimah ben Gurion, who's a very wealthy person. And it tells us how one of the Rabbanim was going, Rabbi Yehuda says, Rav, he was walking and he sees this, this lady looking foraging for food, looking around for food. So desperate for food that she was looking in the dung. Of an animal. The animal went to the bathroom. She's looking. Perhaps there's a there's a kernel of wheat she can have. And she sees him go by. She says, Rebbe, Rebbe, do you have any food for me? And he had nothing for her. He says, Tell me, who are you? And he looks at her. She looks at him and says, Don't you remember me? You remember Sadi Kadushan by my chasna. And he looks at her and he recognizes her as the daughter of Nakdima Ben Gurion. And he turns and he tells his t- Talmudim there. He said, how much money she had for her own money and money from her father and from her father-in-law, thousands and thousands of dinarim that she had. And now look at her. And then he quoted the Pasuk. He says, he started to cry, Bokhar b'yechem in Zakkai, Yisrael, how great you are Yisrael, b'zman sh'aisim ritzayne when you do the will of Hashem, e'in koluma no nation, no language can rule over you. When you don't do the will of Hashem, you're given over to a low nation, and not just Veloy Biad, Umar Shafula, not just a low nation, elabiyad but you're even given over to the to the animals of the lowly nation that you have to look through the dung of the animal to find some food, and that's what the skin is telling us: the difference of how we left Mitzrayim and how we left. Eretz Tells us also, Sefer Lechem Dima tells us that the ladies in Mitzrayim were forced to help their husbands make the bricks. And we know they would take the bricks and they would add in, they would add in thorns, the Mitzrayim. So when they mixed the mud and the water and the straw, they would put in thorns so there was blood there. Which is amazing how the Nazis managed to copy everything at the end, people that went on the death march, they said that the bread that they were given, not only did they put in um, put in some flour and water, and of course some, some uh, sawdust, but they also put in shards of glass. So when they would eat them, it would, it would cut them on the way down. They got it from somewhere. They got it from the matrim who would put in thorns. So the Sefer, Lechem Dima tells us that the ladies were trying to help their husbands fill up the quota. Because if not, the babies would be put into the wall. And the Savior tells us once there was a lady. She was working, helping her husband, but she was pregnant. And while she was working so hard, she gave birth, the baby fell out. But they couldn't stop for a second. And the baby was baked into the bricks and put into the wall. Amalaf came and took the brick with the baby inside and brought it up to Hashem. And said, Hashem, this is your nation. How could this happen? And Hashem says, leave it here. And he put that brick by his feet. And says every time he wanted to punish Kal Yisrael, he looked at that brick and he saw the baby inside. He saw what they went through and he forgave them. Until it came to the Khorban, As we say in the Kinnah, Hashem went, he took the stone and he threw it down. He says, that's it. The Sinus Chinam, the Vaidazar, everything else, Hashem threw that brick down, and that's how we're able to have the Churv, that's how what a place we brought it to. And again, our job is somehow to get from a Tsesim Yerushalayim to the Shuvi Yerushalayim. So, what are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to do that? How are we supposed to switch from one to the next? The Kaj tells us that if a person wants to speak to the king, they can't speak to the king. If you're a governor, you're a minister, you make an appointment, eventually you'll get an appointment. But if you're a commoner, you're a regular person, you can't speak to the king. There's only one way a commoner can speak to the king. And that is to wait till the king's not in his palace. And the king's going out visiting. When the king's going out visiting, a commoner has an opportunity, has a chance to scream out something to the king. Throw a letter to the king or something while the king's walking down the street. It says, the says, we you know in Tishabav, we feel it the most, the Baruch Hu is not in his palace. There is no palace. There's no Beis Amigdash down here. And therefore, Akash Baruch Hu is out on the street. So It says, when you're sitting on the floor in Tishabav, Baruch Hu is mamish together with us, which is an opportunity, no different than the Ka'ingado, the Fnaiva, the on Yom Kippur, and the Ka'esh Kedasham, is every single kid sitting on the floor can go and state his request to Rabbi Yislam, because the Shalom is right here. Not to lose opportunity. We don't have the Beis English, but it comes with opportunities, and that's one of them. But the tefillah has to be a real tefillah. It can't just be, you just dab and then that's it. You know, the pastor tells us, Yaakov was fighting with the Malach. When they finished fighting, it was morning. The Malach says, let me go. And Yaakov says, what are you, a kidnapper? Are you a thief? Why do you have to leave just because it's morning? He says, "No, I'm a malach, and it's my turn to say shiro." So the Gemara says it's his turn to say shiro. So let him say shiro. Let him say shiro later. He's in busy. He's in the middle of a fight. So the Gemara tells us an amazing thing. The Gemara tells us, "Sadi Aleph Aleph Beis that is so We are closer. We are more precious to Hashem than malachim, and you know why?" Because Yisrael ayim shir b'chol shah, a Yisrael can say shirah to Hashem whenever he wants. A little six-year-old wants to have a candy, makes a shahakal, Hashem listens. Malachim yisharis, malachim ein ayim shirah el ba pamaches A mal can only say shirah once a day. Amri others say other malachim. I mean, pamaches b'shabbos. Other malachim can only say shirah once a week. Pamaches b'chaydes, pamaches b'shana. There's some once a month. Some malachim only once a year. Pamachas b'shuah. There's some malachim only once every seven years. Pamachas b'yeivel. There's some malachim, they only get to say Shira once every 50 years. Bamri pamachas And there's some malachim who get to say Shira t'shem only once in their existence. But Yisrael can say whenever they want. Explains Rashi and the morale. This malach was created long time ago. But now was his opportunity to say shirat Hashem. This was his one opportunity. Now we can understand what happens. It says one group says Kardesh then they disappear. Another group malachim come, the Gemara tells us they say Kardesh Kadesh, then they disappear. They're gone forever. A third group comes and says Kardesh Kadesh, kadash, Hashem tzavakai, and they disappear. And they're gone. Now we can understand why are we talking about what the malachim davin, before we say Shema and Shema Esrei. The Molochim, the Davening, even and they're speaking so clearly and together, who cares what the Molochim are doing? I'm Davening. Teretz says, we Daven, we get the words in, we get the words out, and we're gone. Could you imagine if you only had one opportunity to Daven? Imagine you got Daven Shema once every 10 years. What would that Shema look like? You're about to Daven Shema think to yourself, Kaddish, Kaddish, Kaddish. Guess what? The malachim, once in their existence, then they're gone. We all remember, most of us remember, birches hachama. Once every 28 years, we all prepared. We all knew the night before where we're going, how we're getting there. We have our sitter, everything's ready. Is birches hachama more chasha than shahakol Ni b'zvarei? We think it's more chasha because it's once every 28 years. We say kadosh, kadosh, kadosh. We talk about how the malachim davin. Because the malachim only get to do it once in their existence, these malachim. If we would think we get to damage Sh'me once every 10 years, once every 20 years, how would we prepare for it? So what? So we get to do it three times a day. That's how lucky we are. We're Chaviv to Rabbi Nesheleim. That's the Tzfila Hashem's looking for. And that's the Tzfila we're supposed to have. In 1941, during World War II, June 22nd, 1941, there was something called Operation Barbarossa. The Nazis, the Germans, enacted Operation Barbarossa. What was that? There was a treaty between Russia and Germany not to fight each other as they fight everybody else. Well, that lasted until June 22, 1941, when the Germans, with over 3 million of their own soldiers... And 600,000 other mercenaries attacked Russia, invaded Poland, invaded Ukraine, headed towards headed towards Russia. They were so successful, moving so fast, that the Eisenstocking Gruppe, the German killing machines, the SS, couldn't keep up with the Wehrmacht, with the German army. They were six weeks behind, trying to catch up, getting into the city, rounding up the Jews and taking care of them, enacting their maniacal plan. August 25th, 1941, the Nazis entered a city called Dnepropetvarsk in the Ukraine. By that time, the Wehrmacht already has le- had left, and therefore over 60,000 of the Jews of that city of Petrovsk ran away. 30,000 Jews couldn't leave, they remained. After a few weeks, on October 13th, all the Jews, almost all the Jews, there were 18,000 Jews, 15,000 of the Jews were ordered to report to the botanical gardens. They all reported to the botanical gardens. Over a period of two days, they were shot at, and shot at and machine gunned, and most of them were killed. After two days, those who were still alive were able to leave. There were just a few left. Less than 200 were left. On October 13th, on the way there, there was a group of about 18 boys, 18 teenagers, and young men, who were walking towards the Botanical Gardens. A block before the Botanical Gardens, they passed by a shoal. Now, the Nazis never had enough manpower. They always used the locals, who were more than happy to assist, especially the Ukrainians. And there were Ukrainian policemen, auxiliary police all over the place. And this group of boys turned to the policemen and said, could we go inside this shoal? says, why do you in- want to go inside the shul? He says, you want to pray. He says, you want to pray to your God? Why? In a few minutes you're going to meet him in person. No, no, please let us go inside. Humor us. So they're laughing. Sure, go inside. We give you 20 minutes. They went inside, these young men, and they dave in mincha. They finished mincha. They left. They went to Botanical Gardens. And that's where they were killed. One of them survived. His child was in Eretz Yisrael. And he would always say this person, he says, could you imagine that mincha that we daven then? Nobody complained the chaz was going too fast or the chaz was going too slow or what's for supper? Or why is the guy next to me coughing so much? Or why is the guy behind me sneezing so much? Or why is the guy pushing this or doing that? Because they knew this was their last tefillah. Could you imagine such a tefillah? That's a tefillah like they daven, the way the malachim daven, knowing that after this it's all over. Akash Baruch says, that's the tefillah I'm looking for. That's the feel I'm looking for. The late 1950s, there was a fellow in Eretz Yisrael He was having his first child. It wasn't such an easy pregnancy. Baruch Hashem, in the hospital, and his wife gave birth. Ten minutes later, the doctor comes to him and says, sir, you have a problem. He says, something went wrong with your wife, and she may not make it. He says, but there's an operation that we can do, and there's a chance we'll save her life, but she'll never be able to have a child again. And this guy, a young man, he doesn't know what to do. He says, when do you have to have it? Well, within the next two or three days, we have to have the operation. He says, okay, don't do it yet. Let me, let me think. He runs on a bus, gets on a bus to Tel Aviv from there. He got a taxi to Bnei Brak, and he went to the Chazanish. He bursts into the Chazenish's house. The Chazenish was about to start minchil. He was standing by the sink, about to wash his hands. And he comes over, and he starts to tell the Chazenish what's going on. The Chaznish was known, he never interrupted anybody, he let the person finish. And he looks at the person, he says, Sakonis nefashis. Sakonis nefashis. The man looks at him and he realizes how foolish he sounds. His wife needs to have an operation. She doesn't have the operation, she's for sure going to die. He's worried that she'll have the operation, they won't have children anymore, maybe. Sakonis nefashis. Okay. He turns to leave, and the Chaznish says, Younger man, you already. He says, no. He says, we're davening now. Daven. He stays. You can imagine a minchid with the, with the chazanish. For him, he knew what was going on. His mom's like a nila davening for him. And he's davening for his wife, for his child, for his future. He finishes davening. Davening's over. He turns to leave. And someone taps him on his shoulder. He says, Younger man, the chazanish wants to speak to you again. He goes back to the chazanish. He says, Yeah. And the chazanish says, Tell me your shayla again. Tells the child again, he says, "Take her home and she'll be fine." So the Rav just says, "The karness So the chazan looks at him and he says, "That was before mincha. After mincha, she'll be fine. You can take her home." The person take her home and they had many, many more children. It was a mincha. Look what you can do with a mincha. We take this you kino. It's a short kino which we're going to see now. And again, we look at the conscience, how it was when we left Mitzrayim, how it was when we left Yerushalayim, and how could we get it back to go back to Yerushalayim? What Hashem wants is our relationship with us. That's us feel it. Next, Kinnah was saying, Kinnah Lamedalit. Yimach p'yichbadati, yichap liyavayni, on the day that I increased my burden, sholchi yod Bidam navi, b'chatzar al-mikdash Hashem. They stretched out my hand to kill the Navi of Hashem in the courtyard of Hashem. And the earth would not cover it until the sword of the enemies came in. Until the blood of Zechariah would be silent and would be avenged. This kina is a very sad kina, looking at what Klaishol at times be responsible, be capable of doing. The Gemara tells us that Kaiso committed seven terrible in one shot. Ritzicha, a murder. He murdered a kayan He murdered a Navi. He murdered a Shefet. In the Chutz of the Beis HaMikdash, on Yom Kippur, on Shabbos. And the Kinnah explains of how when the general in the Buziradan came to destroy the base Migdash, he sees the blood on the floor boiling, bubbling. He says, "What's this?" He said, "What do you? Mean, what's this? What do you think this is? It's a butcher shop. We shuck the animals here all the time. These are bulls and goats." He said, "Bring me a bull." They brought a bull. He shucked the bull. He slaughtered the bull. He compares the blood. It's not bull blood. They brought him a goat. They brought him a sheep. He says, "Tell me what this blood is, or I'm going to kill all of you." So the one who tells us that if you don't tell me what this is, he tells them, I'm going to tear your I'm going to comb your skin with, iron, with an iron comb. That was pretty convincing. And they said, Look, what should we do? We had this Navi, he was bothering us the whole time, and uh, we stopped him, we killed him. He said, Oh, really? He said, if That's the case. I'm going to appease him. What did he do? He brought the Sanhedrin. Haggadol and the Sanhedrin Kitano, and he slaughtered them and he mixed their blood with Zechariah's blood and after a few minutes the blood started to boil again they couldn't stop it so he went and he brought 80,000 children 80,000 children and he shafted them in that spot mixing the blood with Zechariah and Avi's blood and the blood didn't stop he brought the Pirchei Kahuna, and he shechted them, and the blood didn't stop. Finally, the Buzarat looks at the blood, and he says, Zechariah, Zechariah, Taivim him. I got rid of the finest of your people. Nicholon Kulu. You want me to kill everybody? And as soon as he said that, as soon as he said that, the blood rested. And now, all of a sudden, he got to hear a tshuva he said to himself, This is the response for one person. What's going to be the someone who killed all, the more, all those people? He ran away from his house, and he became a gayer when he saw that. How is it possible that we can go and kill a Navi? It's because we didn't like what the Navi was telling us. We all know, you don't like the Navi's telling you, you killed the Navi. Because this way the Navu will go away. The problem is, it doesn't work. And we killed the Navi, all we brought upon ourselves was more misfortune and more misfortune. And how many people were killed? And ultimately, the Beisimivash was destroyed because of that. Yitzchok your Frankel, so the story last year, who's the father-in-law of Rabbi was invited by the Polish government to come to Poland, and they were having an anniversary, uh, an anniversary celebration over there. And the anniversary was about the an uprising, the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. And they invited people from all over the world to come. And from Israel, they invited Rabbi Frankl Frankel together with a fellow named Gidon Hasner. Gidon Hasner was the prosecutor by the Eichmann trial and therefore they invited him as well. But when they brought them there, there were no other Jews by the ceremony and even though it was many years later, there were still many Yiddin living there as communists and they couldn't really live as openly as Yiddin. They were scared. And by the ceremony, nothing Jewish was related to this. They said, sure, there's a Polish uprising in the Warsaw Ghetto forgetting to mention the Jews at all. They kept on saying, Polish people, Polish people. And finally, Yitzhak Frankl, he wasn't scheduled to speak. When the last speaker finished, he walks over to the mic. He says over a Mishnah, and he starts to say Kaddish. Because he sees out of the corner of his eyes in the in the park next to him, the other street next to where the ceremony was, there a bunch of Yidin watching. And as he said Kaddish, they would scream out, Amen, Hesmeravah. Then they went from there to Treblinka. And they're gonna have a ceremony by Treblinka. On the way walking to Treblinka, as they're getting closer and closer, Rabbi Franco looks down and he sees bones, fragments of bones, little pieces of bones that he couldn't believe. He turns to one of the tour guides and says, what, What's all this stuff here? She says, Those are bones. He says, Bones from what? He goes, Rabbi, those are those are human bones. He says, human bones on the side of the road? He says, Rabbi, this is Treblinka. What do you think happened here in Treblinka? Don't you know anything? He says, I know very well what happened to Treblinka. But how could you leave bones over here? Aren't you embarrassed? I know what happened to Treblinka. You guys did Treblinka. He says, Rabbi, he says, you know how many times we tried to get rid of these bones? We dug holes and we buried it. And a year later, they came to the surface again. We dug holes again, we buried it. And a year later, it came to the surface again we put blacktop on top with steamrollers. And a year and a few months later, they came to the top. We can't get rid of these bones, so we just leave them here. Ray Frankel asked someone, someone had a newspaper there, he borrowed his newspaper and he went down, and he started to collect, together with Gideon Hausner, to collect, as everyone else was watching, all these little pieces of bones. He brought it back with him to Eretz and he made them at Seva, at Sezakadashi Turblinka, and he buried those bones and every year on that yard site he goes there and he says, Kaddish for them. So we think this is something that happened 2,000 years ago, the blood of Zechariah, well, more than 2,000 years ago. But we see also Kaddish Baruch who knows what's going on, obviously. And that Kaddish Baruch is protecting the Kaddusha of the Kaddish Triblinka. And it took someone to come to bring them back to Eretz Yisrael. But if we go and we say this kinah, it's not a long kinna. But we have to understand it's a very straightforward kina, as we say at the end. Hashem, we, um, <laughs> we sinned, we were wicked. And then we say the words that are hard to say. <laughs> we murdered your Navi, and we recognize what we did, but still, <laughs> but still comfort us as we cry about this all the way until our graves. <laughs> Second to last uh, Kinnah we're going to be saying, Kinnah La'am So the Kinnah is known as uh, the Tzianim. Much of Kinnahs is talking with the word Tzian, Alei Shishali, LeShleim HaSirayich, Dersheh Shleimach, VeHem Yesser Adarayich. Tzian, I'm not going to ask about those who are imprisoned, but we're going to seek your welfare for those, VeHem Yesser Adarayich, those who remain. Those are us. We're the ones who remain. We're the ones who cry out to Hashem, Hashem, come and redeem us. Because you have no, no one else to redeem. If you don't come and redeem us, who knows what you'll have left. We say, talk about Eretz Yisrael. And we understand that out of the next nine, Kinnis, eight of them talk about Eretz Yisrael. And for the simple reason as we spoke all the way in the beginning, all this started because we were not ready to go into Eretz And therefore, we say this kina, showing our love and our desire to go to Eretz This kinna was written by Rehuda Levi. It's well known. He wrote the Kuzari. And whether it's just a muscle or actually happened, it's up for discussion. But the Savior says how the king gathered together people from different religions Finally, let's decide which religion is the true religion. And among the people debating was Yudah Levi. And they speak about different things. And at the end, the king tells Yudah Levi, you know, you're very convincing. But if you're right, and if you're correct, then you're a hypocrite. He says, why is that? He says, you speak about the Jews, and you speak about Eretz Yisrael, and yet you live here. And Yudalevi later on said, he goes, I had an answer for every question he asked, except for that one. Why indeed am I here? Why am I not there? And as the story goes, he made his way to Yisrael. And when he got there, different places that say happened, he got off his horse, he bent down to kiss the ground, and an Arab horseman drove by and trampled him. We speak about this kina how we desire to go to Eretz Yisrael, And we talk about Eretz Chemda, Taiva, Rechava. We say it's a, it's a land that it's, it's good and it's expansive. And we have to wonder, we all know Eretz Yisrael is not such a large place. Eretz Yisrael is that line on the map that if you look closely, you see it's really two lines, and in between there is Eretz Yisrael. How could we, we can say it's precious, how could we say Eretz Yisrael is Rechava? And it all matters where it is. If a person tells you I'm a very wealthy person because I own an acre of land, your next question has to be, "Is where is that acre of land? Say, oh, it's in Nebraska. For an acre of land in Nebraska, you can get a cup of soda. But if your acre of land is in midtown Manhattan, then you're a wealthy person. It's the same acre of land, but it matters where it is. And Eretz every spot of Eretz is so precious. We just slain the last week's parsha. It says, Nahar HaGadol, Nahar Paras, The great river, the river of Peros, the Euphrates River. Which is the real border of Eretz Yisrael, by Iraq. Why is it called the Yam HaGadol, the Nahar HaGadol? It's from the smallest rivers mentioned in the Torah. And Rashi explains, because it's associated with Eretz Yisrael. Anything associated with Eretz Yisrael makes it special, makes it important, makes it big. And that's what we say in this kingdom. They say over that the, the Sefer Sheba Leleket says, there's a story in Kufnun Hay uh, in Sheba Leleket, that the law is when you bench, you have to take the knives off the, off the table. Because once a person was benching, and he was thinking, how wonderful earth is, your shalim is going to be rebuilt in the base of Migdash and the and he was going through the whole thing in his mind. And then he opened up his eyes, he realized the whole thing wasn't real. He was just thinking it. And he took the knife and he stabbed himself. So, therefore, the, the minute is we don't keep a knife on our table when we bench. Somebody once asked Friedrich Esquareva, he said, Does that Allah still apply today? And he thought for a moment, he says, Yes, it applies today. Because why does it apply today? He says, Because we're not on that level to stab ourselves, chasu thinking about the base of Middash. But the least we can do is remember that there used to be a time when people felt that way. If we take the knife off, we think, You know how we're taking off the knife? Because there used to be a time when people would think so much into the base of that they were in danger of stabbing themselves. Me yaseli If only someone would make me wings, I can wander far away and fly to Eretz Yisrael. For the years are saying this. The hundreds and thousands of years are saying this. Kina, hundreds of years are saying this. Kina. It was a metaphor. If there could be only wings, I would fly to Eretz Yisrael. Today we know it's not a metaphor. We can just jump on a plane and fly to Eretz Yisrael. <clears throat> Problem is, we use those same wings to fly right back and not stay. And of course, there are always reasons why we're not there. But that should be our longing. If we're here, but we should want to be there. <laughs> a breath of life for our is good in your land. Maish Rebbein was begging to come to Eretz Yisrael even as an animal so you can breathe the air of Eretz Yisrael. We said over in the past this Meshulach, who was traveling around the end up in Baltimore for Shabbos. He watches the family as they're getting ready for Kiddush, and the father is getting the bottle of wine, and everyone gathers around the father, and he says, oh, they're getting a bracha. But then the father opens the wine, pours the, the becher, and the kids just walk back to their seat. He didn't give them a bracha. Okay, no bracha. But after Kiddush, the kids come up again, and he gives them all the bracha so after they washed this Meshulach asked the father he goes I don't understand if you gave them a bracha the second time why did they come up the first time he says, very simple I live here in Baltimore but I would love to live in Eretz Yisrael but I can't so I'm careful to make kiddush with wine from Eretz Yisrael but you ever see the way they fill up a bottle of wine they don't fill it to the top there's a little air in the, on top so wherever that bottle was filled up it has air from that place if it's from Italy there's air from Italy in there but this was filled up in Eretz Which means there's air from Eretz in that bottle So every Friday night My family gathers around So when open up a new bottle of wine And a little air comes out We can all breathe in the air of Eretz And that mashulach turned red Because he said to himself He does a lot of breathing in Eretz All day, that's what he does in Eretz He breathes That's what he does for a living Stop that and you're gone and now this family gets together to breathe the air of Eretz Yisrael. So does he really feel that? When we say that in the kina. What are we going to think when we say it? That's how badly we, we should want to go to, to, um, to Eretz Yisrael. And that is the feeling we're supposed to have when we lay in these. But we have to make sure. Because we're such content with Eretz Yisrael, so many things go on, not to do the same Aveira the Maraglum did. And speak bad about Eretz Yisrael. You know, there's a person who has a. Uh, air conditioning store in Eretz Yisrael. and by a section of air conditioners, uh, electronics. By a section of air conditioning, he has a sign. The sign says, "Mazgina derav Asi Rav Ami." The air conditioners of Rav Asi and Rav Ami. Now, Israelis may be advanced, but Rav Asi and Rav Ami did not have air conditioners. So how could he have an air conditioner? The Gemara says, when they would give shear under the tree, they would constantly move the crowd. So the crowd will always be in, sh- in the shade. As the sun was moving, the, they would move, so they would always be in the shade. Chas somebody should say, it's too hot here. I'm uncomfortable here in Eretz And therefore, he would move them that way. How important it is to only speak positively about Eretz This person says, I'm selling air conditioners. No one should ever say that they are hot in Eretz says in Yuma... At the end of the fight, would lean, and then he would say, karasi More than I read to you, there is written here. We, we skipped a lot of the kinnas. The person's available the whole day to say them and to mourn over the base minister throughout the day. This is the last kinnah we'll be saying. Afterwards, we're going to sing the kinnah, We'll stand and sing it. Mem hei. And then we'll say, Asha Veltsian. Like a lady suffering from giving birth. Like a lady, a young girl in her sackcloth, crying for the husband of her youth. And we go through this kinah, comparing ourselves to a lady who's crying by the birth of... The question is obvious, of all the pains, why do we talk about the birth pains of a, of a pregnant lady? <coughs> Tisha 1947, in B'nei Brak, Rav Kahanamin, the, the Panovich got together the Bokhrim who were there. Unfortunately, all those Bokhrim were people who went through the war, lost their parents, many of them, went through terrible, torturous times. He did not need to explain to them... And give them motivation to cry for the Beisamidash. They knew exactly what they were missing. But he asked them, he says, What's the comparison here to birth pains of a lady? And he explained to them, he said, When a lady's in the terrible pain, she's thinking about the pain, and she's crying, and she screams, she's never gonna do this again. Until the baby is born, then she's ready to have another. And that's because she sees the fruit of that pain. When we cry in Tisha B'Av, we're not really crying over the Beis HaMikdash that we lost. Nobody cries over something you lost 2,000 years ago. We are crying over what we are missing right now. And that's why we know we cry like a lady giving birth, because we know that we're going to get something for our pain. We're going to get something for our crying, for our mourning. And that is we're going to get the Beis HaMikdash. And the closer and the more that we do, the closer we'll get to it. In 1945, the, the previous Shver Rebbe, Asim Vestaira, was dancing. He was clapping much more than usual. And this bothered his wife, the Revitson, very much. She was very upset and disturbed that her husband was dancing so much. And when they came home that night, she asked her husband, Why are you dancing so much? And that's because three weeks earlier, their young daughter, Malka, was Nifter, was Nifteris. She was only 20 years old. They were still in the Shlishim. And she was wondering, how could her husband clap and dance so much? And he turns to his wife and says, you think I'm clapping and dancing for the past? I'm clapping and dancing for the future. And that's why I can clap and dance. And it's the same with us. We're not crying about the past. We're crying for what could be right now. In a few moments we have left, we've spoken in the past years what it is that we can do. Everyone's fond of saying the base minister was destroyed because of sin of and we have to have a havas skinom. And everyone knows you don't hate people for no reason. Everyone's got a good reason. The pshad of sin means your reason is not good enough compared to what you're losing out by hating the person. We spoke about many things in the past. You know, We spoke about being nice to people, looking for the good in people. You know, there's a mitzvah in the Torah. It says, Don't hate your friend in your heart. Which means if you hate somebody, you have to say, Ruvain, I just want you to know I, I hate your guts. I did a mitzvah How is that possible? How could the Torah tell you, go over to, ignore him, avoid him. Move to another town. No, you can't hate him in your heart. You have to tell him. How could that be? So Rav Levine said he always had the question until one time he got the answer. One time he was walking down the street and I'm sorry, a person was walking down the street and a person sees Revaier walking down the street and there was a Levaya. A lot of people buy this Levaya. And he sees Revaier Levine buy a too. Very nice, he joins the Levaya. Then he sees Revaier Levine cut out of the Levaya and he goes into a flower st- uh, store. A flower store. A florist. Yeah. This guy's walking with the crowd. About five minutes later, he sees him come out with a flower pot. And he, jo- he, he joins the procession. The guy thinks to himself, really? You have no other time to buy yourself a flower pot with a, fla- with a plant? than during a funeral, you couldn't wait 20 minutes? And he's very upset at him. He says, this is the tzaddik they call Reva Now I see what he's all about. And a few weeks passed. And I came to the parish and he's reading the post. And he says, uh-oh. Well, he sees as He had no choice. He goes to Ravari Levine's apartment. He knocks on the door. Ravari Levine opens up with a big smile. Ah, yes, what can I do for you? He says, I'm here to do a mitzvah. It's very uncomfortable. He says, okay. He goes, I want you to know I hate you. Oh, okay. Thank you for telling me. Do you want to come in for a drink? He says, no, I hate you. He says, okay, okay. Could you just do me a favor? Could you just tell me why you hate me? He says, yeah. And he told him what happened. He says, no, okay, you're 100% right. But give me a minute to explain to you what happened. There's a person in the hospital who has leprosy. And it's highly contagious. No one's allowed to visit him. They only let in his wife and myself. And we can't go in more than four feet near his bed. His wife came to my house that morning of that Leviah and told me that her husband died. And they're taking all his clothing and they're burning it because that's what they have to do with it. And they're burying him. I ran there and I said, what are you doing with this tefillin? I said, Rabbi, we have to burn the tefillin. There's no choice. Even the rabbi at the hospital said it's going to be contagious. I said, you can't burn the tefillin. I said, we have no choice. We argued back and forth until they came up with the idea that if they can bury him in an earthenware pot that can contain it, we can do that. They gave me an hour. I ran to the store. There was a levaya going on. I had no choice. I'm pushing my way in. I ran to the store. I bought a flower pot with a flower plant in it. I ran back to the hospital, dumped out the plant and gave them the flower pot which was made out of earthenware and this way they didn't have to burn the tefillin. That's how they were able to save the tefillin. The guy looked at him and he apologized. And Avari Levine says, now we understand why it says, because chances are when you go over to the person and you say what it is that it's bothering me about you, you'll find out that there's nothing really there. It's a miscommunication, it's a misstatement, It's a misunderstanding. And you do that, that can take it away. That's what the Torah says, But for that to happen, you need an attitude adjust, adjustment. Just give me two more minutes. tell you an unbelievable way to do it. There was a person in Jerusalem who used to go visit his rabbi who lived in Rechovot. And even after he got married, he would make sure every year on a on, on on he would go visit his rabbi. And one year he was visiting, he's running to catch the bus to get to Rehovot It was the last bus, leaving, and he didn't want to miss it because then he couldn't get the bus back. And the next day, he's running, he's running, he finally makes it the bus, hoping he'll get a seat. He runs on the bus, the bus is full. He notices in the back, towards the back, there's one empty seat. He runs there, he gets the seat, he sits down, he's all sweaty, trying to get himself organized. And while he's getting himself organized, he looks up, and there's a guy sitting across the aisle next to him, looking at him, and he gives him this big smile he looks at the guy, the guy is missing a whole bunch of teeth. And this fellow thinks to himself, what are you smiling at me? Do you know how you look? Stop smiling at me, he thinks to himself. Okay, he busy gets out, he gets, gets out his gemara, he starts to get ready to learn. And he looks at the guy, and he thinks to himself, it's his first time I'm sitting with a gemara, going to get a rock from my Rabbi, and that's why I think about another year that I never met before. The guy is just smiling at me. So he looks at him, he says, Shalom Aleichem, He tries to make a nice conversation with him, and the guy answers back, and they're talking for a few minutes. And the guy says, Okay, it was nice meeting you. I got to get back to serious stuff, you know, uh, to, to my Gemara. Kipper is coming. So the guy says, Yeah, Yankipper is coming. This here is going to To people, I so had, had a court case and they threw me in jail. And in jail, is in Siberia, and I'm, and I'm stuck. And I had to work every day very hard. Shabbos, Yontif it was coming to Kipper and I said, No matter what happens, I am not going to work on Yankipper and I'm going to fast on Yankipper. That Yankipper, the guy says, If you don't work, they're, they're going to kill you. You have no choice. He says, We came with a plan. Air of Yankipper, at the end of work, I started screaming, my tooth hurts, my tooth hurts. So, my boss, the, the commander, sent me to the infirmary. The doctor takes one look at me, he says, Oh, your tooth is infected. He takes a plier and rips out my tooth. No anesthesia, no nothing. But the rule was if you had a procedure done, you can stay in the hospital for that day. I managed to stay there on Yankipper. I didn't fast and I didn't work. Well, the next year, Yankipper was coming again. So, what a great idea. I entered Yankipper after work. I started screaming and paying my tooth, my tooth. The guy took his pliers. Yanked it out and I got to stay there. I was in Siberia for seven years. I lost seven teeth. But I never worked or fast or never worked or ate onion kipper. I just came here from Eric a few months ago. This is my first Yankipper here. This year I get to fast and I won't lose a tooth. That's why it's gonna be an easy Yankipper. Now the fellow's looking at him now, and now we saw him smile, and now we saw the most beautiful smile you can ever see. What was the difference? The difference is because he understood what this person went through. Instead of judging him so fast, he realized how special each person is. If we ever want Mashiach to come, we are presented every single day. Khashbarahu gives us many, many opportunities to talk to Brigham. Our question is, when someone smiles at us, how do we think about that person in our heart? You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnyTime.com.